episode 127 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm your host, Scott Harvey, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Shelley. Today on the podcast, it is part two of our Best of 2020 countdown, and we'll be getting into the real meat of the lists with our consensus picks and our individual picks for number one, the best movie of 2020. Scott, how are you? I'm doing well. I have segued from a standing position into a sitting position for this podcast. The podcast magic of it all is that we haven't really taken a break since our, our previous episode, but I have changed positions for it. So a peek behind the curtain there. Yeah, uh, I know. Got to keep wow. people interested. Got to keep people interested. Got to show them how the sausage gets made. I was going to say, there are three things, to, to paraphrase Leo McGarry from the West Wing, there are three things you don't want people to see how you make them. Laws, sausages, and podcasts. Yeah. Um, and we've just ruined one. But there you go. Um, joining us again on part two of this journey. Uh, again, uh, as, as Scott revealed that, you know, they they didn't have to go anywhere. They just stayed here. But uh, Paul Oyama and Aaron Jay are back. Guys, how's it going? It's going. You know, this is a marathon, not a sprint, but it feels like a sprint that's really, really extra distance. So we'll see if we can make it through this second part. <laughs> Oh, I'm doing just fine. I mean, Paul needs to do more podcasts because I'm just getting warmed up here. So like, a couple <laughs> yeah. hours in, like the voice is just now coming too. I, I think to I've say, done plenty. I think I've done plenty. I was about <laughs> to say, this was the point where Aaron and Video Drew and Sabrina and everyone were just getting to like halfway through. I'm thinking of ending things when they did their discussion of that. So like they were they were two and a half hours in and just like halfway through the movie. I the real podcast is the friends I made along the way. By the way, if if uh, if people haven't watched that, you guys should go watch that discussion that they had because that was a, a really good discussion and gave me some new insights on that movie. But uh, go check it out. Uh, on this episode, there's a free plug, Aaron. Uh, let's get into our consensus picks now. So these are the movies that made multiple lists. Um, most of them are movies that appeared on two people's lists. There are two movies that uh, appeared on three people's lists. We'll get to those uh, towards the end. Uh, but we're going to start with the, the two first, the movies that appeared on two people's lists. And the first movie we're going to talk about is my number nine uh, and Paul's number five. So I'm going to throw it to Paul to uh, introduce a movie that Scott brought up on his top 20. Uh, and that is Cooper Rafe's debut feature, the audience prize winner at South by Southwest, I believe, uh, the movie Shithouse. Paul? Yeah, I think this is a really, really special movie. And it's it's rare that you get movies made about young people that are actually by young people. And you can really feel that this is authentic. I think especially if people went to college, like American University, um, there's so much truth to like the subtle nuances of this experience. And I think movies like this often get dismissed as like, oh, that's cute and fun and nice or whatever. And I think part of that's because the demographic's a little younger than your average critic necessarily. But to me, this is a movie that I think is up there as one of the best and most emotionally true movies of the year for me. Um, it gets to so much about, you know, the way that we put up these walls with ourselves and um, we refuse to engage with the emotional side of our lives. And um, for me, college was a really transformative experience. And I think that's why this connected so heavily for me. 
Um, I love movies like this where it's about these people who meet for this very special, rare, brief window um, for a moment in time and they have this connection. Um, you know, something like Brief Encounter from David Lean all the way up uh, through the Before trilogy. Like these types of movies I really love. And to me, this got to so much emotional truth about, um, you know, our, our fear of putting ourselves out there. And I think that this is a movie that I think a lot of people can find so much connection to. I think Dylan Galula is one of my favorite young actresses and she's remarkable in this. I think that she's so effortless and um, the way that she connects to this character and she kind of like, you know, seeds from, from the forefront when she wants to give the attention back on him. And there's an argument in this movie that I think is like one of the most honest portrayals of like the frustration of modern dating with young people. And um, there's so many little things I think that make this movie so, so special. And it's not just, you know, your run of the mill. Oh, it's a nice little festival movie to sit here on the shelf. It's something that I think is really great. And Scott Sheldon mentioned this a little bit, but I think if the ending the last five minutes was a little different, um, this would have been maybe my number one, my number two. Um, it's one of those things where it feels like, again, you know, that's a pro and a con. The fact that a young person made this is, I think it lacks a bit of the perspective of like what this would really lead to. I think there's some emotional truth that it sort of shies away from at the very, very end. But that, that I only really noticed that because of how good the rest of it was. And I think um, it's a movie I, I just really connected to. And this is the movie, every year there's one movie that is like my pet cause to get people to watch this movie. And after I watched this movie, I, I DM like 10 or 15 people telling them like, yo, you should watch this movie now. I think this would really speak to you. And I think especially to people in our in our age, this is um, a really personal movie that I think you can get a lot, a lot, a lot. Aaron, Aaron Shakespeare, Aaron Shakespeare said, I think he didn't boomer. get a DM. Yeah. <laughs> Aaron's the boomer. Let's Dude, I thought I was on the 15. I'm not. It's okay. <laughs> Remember it's that? Right. I thought, you were, you, I thought you, were, you were just hip to it, you know? You, I thought that? Aaron was plugged into the scene. What was that thing back in the day that T-Mobile or somebody had about like your your top four or something in your phone or something? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, they had all those commercials. Your favorite four or something. I'm gonna pause MySpace page and check out the top eight. <laughs> <laughs> also, the music in this movie rules. There's a Waxahachie song that I think is great, and like a, the the song that ends the movie, like it's just got great. Again, it's a, a very modern. Again, it's not a soundtrack that people actually would listen to if they're our age. Not you could have just said it's a Waxahachie song, and you didn't even need to say it was great because that <laughs> says it all right there. But um, but yeah, this is my number nine. And this is a great movie. Um, and this movie, I am one hundred percent with Paul, and we've talked about this before. How this this type of movie that he described, like, is our both of our canon sort of about like these people who come together and form these spontaneous um, connection in like a brief amount of time before trilogy being the best example for me at least uh, some of my favorite movies uh this movie is like the it has the whole before trilogy in one right it it <laughs> the first part of the movie is before sunrise right the meeting then it takes a left turn and goes to before midnight right which i actually <laughs> like i like that that's the direction it, it went in after uh the chance encounter i thought that that part was very realistic and then uh, it goes back towards sunset in the end, which I was a little less, uh, you know, enamored with as both Scott and Paul have said, I think. But uh, yeah, the emotional vulnerability, I think, is the thing that really stands out to me from this movie. And the fact that um, Cooper Rafe allows himself playing in the lead role to be so open with his emotions and to openly cry on screen and stuff like that. I think we just need to normalize uh, that type of behavior from male characters in movies. Um, and I think Hopefully this will go uh, a little bit of a ways towards doing that. I, I think this is, uh, yeah, a, a real hidden gem. For people who don't know, like, this is about a kid who was just starting at college, uh, hasn't really fit in, and uh, he strikes up this conversation with his RA, who's Dylan Galula, uh, one night uh, 
and you know it spirals one thing spirals into another they end up talking for a long night and uh it's not just about that one night though right it's also about the fallout uh from that night which i think you know makes it more interesting and yeah i'm a paul dylan galula is great i i have uh, been a fan of her since unbreakable kimmy schmidt i think she's one of the funniest parts of that show um and you know just other things that she will like pop up in in small roles like flower that zoe deutsch movie um and some other stuff i think she just makes a great impact uh whenever she shows up so it's great to see her getting the lead here and uh yeah i i think people especially in people in our age range should go seek this movie out because i think uh yeah it, it speaks very truly to the college experience that not just paul had but i think a lot of also, the way this movie's made is crazy. There's kind of a whole story about how he stole cameras from his college um, and and filmed like a short version of this, tweeted this at Jay Duplass, got it funded, like DM'd Dylan Glue on Instagram, and she ended up in the movie. It's like this crazy story of like the most 2020 way a movie was made. Um, That's so millennial. To, like, and it, it makes like it makes it, it makes it kind of frustrating because it's like, damn, I'm like the same age as this guy, and I'm just you know sitting here chilling at home, um, and he's just like making a movie that's like playing it playing it South by Southwest, winning awards. But um, that's kind of again the charm of it is the way the movie's made. All that spirit is like a part of it. Yeah, TFW. Whenever when you see uh, Billie Eilish winning however many Grammys that she won <laughs> last year, and is only 18 years old or whatever. Um, Aaron, you haven't seen uh, Shit House, have you? No, um, I haven't, um, but it's definitely on my list. I just have a thing against SHI 2020 movies. So surely Shit House, I was just like, N -n I'm not interested, apparently. So <laughs> got, my, got my list added up. Uh, I heard this movie mentioned a little bit by a few people, but I just, for some reason, just kind of, it didn't just grab me, but um, just hearing the brief little bit there, then I tried to tune out because I didn't want to hear too much about it. Mm -hmm. All the respect, but like, um, it's definitely on my list for kind of the um, reasons I was hearing there. So I'm excited yeah. for both these movies. Yeah, you can tune me out for a little bit here because I'm going to, I'll go off a little bit more because I figured it was going to come up on at least Scott's list. And I, yeah, like I think this movie is remarkable as much as I, you know, yeah, I, I dinged it on, you know, for the last five minutes. I totally hear you know what you're saying about it, Paul. And I liken it to something like, I mean, obviously Olivia Wilde's a little bit older, but I liken it to something like Booksmart. Like it feels like a movie that you can show to people, you know, who are our peers, right? And they're probably going to, like something in it is going to resonate with them. I think because I like Booksmart about as much, but I think this is way more true to like the actual experience of young people. Sure, whereas Booksmart, sure. it's more fun maybe, but I think but this is going to Ivy League. <laughs> yeah, everything's way more authentic, I think in this case. Yeah, no, that that's definitely true. I just meant more like I feel like it, it is a. Yeah. These are movies that I could I could say, hey, you know, you're someone who is of my generation or my age. I feel like you should watch this and you'll enjoy it. Um, yes, I think that there's like way more fun in Booksmart, and there's probably way more like in your feels moments and in, in in this one, uh, at least to some extent. And I, I certainly felt that way. And you know, I yeah, Dylan Galula. I was I think I told this to Scott. We didn't talk about this on a podcast, but I think I was telling Scott like Dylan the way Dylan Galula is like performing and I, I'll raise my hand and say I haven't seen I don't think I've seen her in anything else but like the way she was delivering her lines at least specifically in this movie like really reminded me of someone that I dated in college and like conversations that I'd had with people um, and so there was like definitely something that hit really at my core um, during you know in the, in that movie uh, watch support the girls watch her smell she's not in them a ton yeah. oh she's in she support the girls, the girls. Right. I forgot I, I've about seen that. support the girls okay yeah. Yeah, she's the new girl right she's movie. the new girl who's like she's kind of like sexualizing girl. herself when they're right. in the car wash okay. and stuff yeah 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 okay yeah no I yeah, that is a good movie. That was the one I came late to from 2018, 2018 films. But yeah, look, she, yeah, there was something really special about like the first 
80, 90 minutes of that movie. Um, I, yeah, like I don't have much more to say or much more to add that hasn't already been said, but I really, I really like this movie and I, I could see it rising through my list on rewatches. All right. Well, Paul mentioned uh, the great music moments in uh, in Shithouse. Uh, another movie, which I think it's fair to say has uh, some great music moments, uh, is our next uh, consensus pick. Paul's number 10, Aaron's number four. Aaron, uh, why don't you start us out with Lover's Rock? Oh, man. Lover's Rock. Um, I've rewatched a lot of my top 20. Um and Lover's Rock is definitely one that I've rewatched quite a bit or at least put on. It's just a complete vibe and party that I've been missing all of 2020. Um, it just, um, I am just a big, just fan of the overall message of the movie. And it's only 70 minutes long. Um, so I get some people could feel the length is like a, a deterrent, but I feel it accomplishes what it is looking to accomplish in the movie that's just i i just i i really enjoyed the scenes before the party also in the kitchen particularly um cooking with my family is definitely something that i enjoy doing more than anything and i haven't gotten to do in over a year now um i've been in washington dc being quarantined for the most part and not traveling back home uh so Definitely getting to see the family cooking. Uh, I think that was actually my favorite at part of the movie. Um, and it's kind of a part that isn't talked about a lot. But uh, yeah, it's just, uh, I think it's a really uh, powerful chapter in the series of Small Acts. And uh, yeah, all, all of them really worked for me. Four of the five worked extremely well. And uh, this one definitely was my, actually my favorite of the series. Um, and, uh, yeah, in the party scenes, it reminded me of like a very, very positive H24 classic climax. So it was like, oh, the, it was like the total opposite end of the spectrum from climax. No was, sangria in this one. No sangria. Yeah, in this. Exactly. But, you know, yes, maybe, noise, lovers rock. There, was, there was definitely some other oh, uh, no. substances, you know, that maybe I, you know, may or may not partake in. Uh, for this podcast but uh either way uh yeah it's like it, it it's a good double feature climax and then finish with lovers rock and you've just got a full musical tour de force of cinema I, yeah i think between oh. this and shithouse it was uh it was quite the year for party bouncers in movies i think both of them had their own very unique i think uh portrayals but um yeah to me this is like I don't know this. This I don't know if you guys probably haven't seen this, but Claire Denise let the sunshine in. There's a dance sequence that Juliette Binoche partakes in. This is basically like a 70 minute version of that dance sequence, and it's like I could totally see this being the thing where it's like this is like you know when they sell Lucky Charms with just the marshmallows, where it's just the sugar, just like the straight direct a direct shot of like the thing that people like the most, and it's like this experiment, and like is that too much or is that not enough? To me, that's what I really loved about this movie is it felt like this pure expression of dance and music and culture. Um, Steve McQueen's like sense of place in all the small X films, I think is so strong and all the little small details, like Aaron mentioned the cooking in the kitchen, the way they're preparing, um, for these meals, even like the slight undertones of the, those weird white guys on the street that kind of remind you of the rest of the small X films, but it's such a great celebration of black love, I think, and, um, what music can do to bring people together and whoever thought that you'd see like an unironic Kung Fu fighting needle drop. That was like actually amazing oh, in 2020. And I hate that song, but it was so good. The and, and, you know, obviously, like, the, the uh, silly game scene is, like, 
maybe the scene of the entire year. Um, that I love that moment where it just takes a pause and lets you sort of soak in that this is the special moment. And um, yeah, this is a movie that's it's kind of quote unquote slight, but I think it's taking a lot of um, you know the best parts of that people love about movies the most and putting that into a full movie. And I think that's such an interesting experiment, and I really took to it. So, and, and I think that like this type of movie is so important too to the small X series and such a good compliment to something like Mangrove, right? Which is like this score of like issue movie, like more traditional, like inspirational story about like these African-American people overcoming, you know, well, they're not American. The title. They're, they're African British. Yeah. Yeah. Like West Indies. They're African, right? Right? Yeah. 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 Uh, they're tr from Trinidad, I believe, but um, is mentioned, but anyway, um, yeah, I, misspoke but uh you know uh, overcoming prejudice you know that like, we've seen like that done before i mean it's done really well in mangrove but uh, but this is just a movie about them living right and i think that's like so important to understanding their experience which i take uh is the purpose of the entire small act series right is to sort of like help you understand um you know the perspectives of this group of people that have not you know necessarily been represented on screen that much and uh i think so this type of film that just shows them living normally and not like having to, you know, overcome all of this prejudice, whatever. I mean, cause that's, that's part of it as well. And so I, I think that this movie is, is really special. And, um, and yeah, those, those needle drops that you mentioned, the silly games scene. Um, I, you know, I, I'm a weird person in that I like didn't Period. really, wasn't, wasn't, well, yeah, I mean, I could just stop there, but, uh, I, I wasn't really much into like the party scene or anything like that in college, but like actually in going to law school, I actually kind of got into more of like the going out and like, you know, parties and stuff like that. And I was like the person in my friend group who was like, um, you know, trying to organize everyone to go out and whatever. So this movie coming in this year when uh, I like got robbed of my last two months of law school and getting to hang out with my like close friends, uh, you know, one last time. Uh, and, you know, go do those things. Uh, it, it hit especially close to home because I, I really missed that. And it made me want to see all of them again and go, uh, you know, do do something like this, even though, you know, normally the party scene, whatever, isn't like totally my thing. This yeah, utopia scratched those itches, I think, in a way. Yeah, that, like, yeah. That's why people connected so much. And that's why, to me, when people watch Small Axe, I actually tell them to finish with this because I think mm -hmm. ending with that celebration Calm of down, joy yeah. is such a great capper. To the end of the entire odyssey but sorry i interrupted scott no no i i was just gonna say i think that i do wonder if i saw this in a normal year and like i was going to social events and being around being at like concerts and parties if i would have oh, yeah. literally the first time i saw this and it was in the party scene i'm like leaning forward both hands in my chin like oh my god i forgot what <laughs> dancing with people and being with people and like is like it been it's been like nine ten months when I saw this movie since I'd been in in a group of people and it's like, so intimate you know there are shots where it's just people's waist moving to the music mm -hmm. for like ten yeah. seconds and yeah. that that like dialogue between right. yeah the way the way that he gets this camera in the middle of the dance floor and these people doing yeah. the, cra the crazy dances that break out sort of near the end like that stuff I think really works yeah and it really could have felt like all marshmallows in the hands of a different I think director and creative team but with this I think it was like a little bit more than that it was just like you know it was like maybe like a like a really really marbled steak if i have to take the food <laughs> metaphor and take adjust it slightly here and when the steak gets more marbled it gets higher and it's considered a higher grade of meat 
in the meat world. Like it's a prime steak is the fattest wow. steak. in the meat so world. That's why meat, meat Aaron, Aaron Gray's master. On like it's got man. Let me tell you. You're not going to have Dave, anybody Dave Fang. This is yeah. a spinoff from his Indies, Indies Explained YouTube yeah, channel. Gonna, ending it Explained, Steaks Explained. So <laughs> let me tell you, a choice, and then there's... <laughs> anyways, like, this is why it's so high on my list, though, at four. Like, at first, I was really surprised to put a movie, a 70-minute dance party movie, this high. But, like, I stand by it. It really is more than meets the eye, I think. And also, if it's just the eye, it's a hell of a... Hell of a dish to you know enjoy. <laughs> For me, it was number twenty. It was like just missed out. So I, I had red, white, and blue at twenty, and then this at twenty-one on nice. my list. So it, it it just missed out. And I I really enjoyed this film. Very surprised to watch this movie after Mangrove. It was I definitely see how the curation of this it, it might even be more impactful after four. All you know, we'll call them heavier films or at least heavier topics to explore. But I really enjoyed it. And one of the things I want to call out that hasn't been talked about yet is that in this you know dance party scene there's also sort of like a subtle i don't want to go as far to say it's like a me too type moment but there is this subtle moment where you have these you know two women who there has been tension rising between them during the party for one reason or another it doesn't it's not really important but then there's this sort of there's this moment in, you know towards the end of the film where you know one of those women is is outside you know I suppose you could you can probably read it different ways, but you know, being essentially about to be assaulted by by a man, and the other woman comes outside and stands up for her, you know, basically gets her out of the situation, takes her back inside, makes sure she's um, safe. And I I really appreciated that moment more than anything, not for any other reason than you know, I don't know, like that 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 stuff happened all the time at parties and you know where I went to school, and I think it happens everywhere at schools all over the country. Not that I mean, school is just relevant because that's the age that I'm at. But um, and I think that it was really, really empowering to see something like that, to see, you know, women standing up for each other um, on the screen, even if, even if you don't necessarily expect that kind of moment in this particular film. But I really enjoyed that moment. OK, uh, moving on to our next choice. And this is my number two film of the year and Scott Shelton's number 10 uh, and that is the documentary Time by director Garrett Bradley. Um, this movie, I knew from about five to ten minutes in that this movie was going to be one of my favorites of the year um, because it is it speaks very uh, heavily on a social cause that is maybe one of the closest to my heart, which is mass incarceration and the criminal justice system in general. Um, and this is uh, a black and white documentary Um again, by director Garrett Bradley. And it tells the story of this woman, Fox Rich, who is an, an African-American woman exactly. in Louisiana. Her husband has been imprisoned for a number of years because she and her husband both committed a bank robbery. And um, they uh, were both imprisoned. Um, you know, she got out, Fox Rich got out early, but her husband, Rob, uh, ended up spending, uh, you know, more than a decade in prison. Um, and it is about her quest um, to free him from prison and to sort of advocate um, against mass incarceration. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of scenes of her making big speeches and presentations at um, colleges and stuff like that about, um, you know, not just her problem, but the, you know, problem that the criminal justice system is facing in general with mass incarceration. Um, and you may ask, how can a movie that is only 80 something minutes long tell this decade spanning story of this woman uh, trying to free her husband? And the answer is that 
it does without even really trying, right? Uh, because it's this sort of, the, the style in which the film is told is this kind of like lyrical, almost like a poem in a way. Um, there's these like long voiceovers of, of Fox Rich. Again, there's these uh, scenes of her that are just like her speeches advocating. Um, and there's like constant score throughout that I think is really beautiful. Um, but it, it's just, it's more of a feeling than it is like a coherent, uh, we're going to tell this story from beginning to end, which I like because I think, you know, we've seen a lot of movies about people who are in prison, you know, for a long time and then get out. Uh, and, but what's interesting, right, is that, and very important to why I like the movie so much, is that they know, try to suggest that he was like, you know, he didn't commit the crime or anything like that. He was wrongfully accused or anything like that. Now, there's no... Uh, well, th there's no disagreement whatsoever about whether the crime is committed. They, you know, they they own up to that, whatever. But that's beside the point, right? The the point is about whether these people should be in prison and should lose so much of their life, uh, so much of the time that they have on Earth, um, because of one mistake and you know one one uh, you know error that they made. That may have been driven by societal forces. You know, we don't we don't really know the background for that. But again, I don't think that's really important. But you know, it has a simple title, but I think it explores time in such a interesting way. Again, not just the time that he spends, you know, in prison, but uh, the time that uh, his family uh, spends without him, right? And his children are growing up um, while he's in prison, and boxes, you know make having all kinds of changes in her own life. And some of the most powerful sequences are where she is calling the clerk of court, right. And the, the judge to find out the results of the case. And it just keeps getting continued. Like it just keeps getting delayed, delayed. And there are these long, like still shots that just uh, are on her as she just sits there on hold waiting for, uh, you know, the, someone to come back. And it just really puts things in perspective of, um, you know, how every single day, really the criminal justice system, um, doesn't understand the importance of time to people like Fox Rich and, um, you know, it is more than willing to just squander days and days and weeks and months, you know, waiting to get to this judicial decision. Um, whereas for the people who are actually affected like Fox Rich, like that's, uh, you know, another day of life that Rob Rich doesn't get to spend with his family. Um, and, uh, so I just think it explores, again, time in, in a lot of interesting ways. And I think, you know, the last part of this movie, the ending is, you know, some of the most powerful filmmaking you'll see uh, this year or any other um, when I mean, it's a true story. So it's not really a spoiler. But when Rob Rich is reunited with his family, um, it just again, even though the film is really short, like you, you, you really feel the weight uh, of what that means to Fox and everyone else. Uh, when he is released, um, just as you would, you know, if this was like the hurricane and Denzel Washington or whatever, and it's a two and a half hour movie and he finally gets out at the end. Um, I, I think it's a extraordinary achievement by Garrett Bradley. Um, and I think that everyone should see this movie just for further opening of eyes about what is going on every single day and the criminal justice system that, people like us might not be affected by, but for the people who are affected by it, like it's their whole lives. Um, and their whole lives can end up defined by this one thing that they did. Um, and so it's it's beautiful, it's sad, but it's also hopeful in the end. And uh, I couldn't love it more. 
Yeah, it's really interesting. It's, it's interesting to, that it worked out this way to talk about this film right after we talk about, you know, a, a small axe film, because you know, talk about films about like black joy at the end. What you're just talking about, like the joy of being reunited with, you know, husband, father, son. I think that's it's extremely, it's extremely powerful. And yeah, it's definitely not a spoiler, but I, di I didn't know that that's how the movie was going to end because I didn't know the story. Um, and I was I mean, I would I didn't think he was going to be released. Right. Like, I think the film sets you up or the documentary sets you up in a way where it's like, you know, they've been doing this for almost two decades at this point. Right. Like, I think he spends like 19 years in prison or something like that. And it's it's like heartbreaking to see that. And I agree, like some of the most powerful shots are the ones that are quiet, the ones that are just on her, right? Whether she's calling the, you know, the clerk or whatnot to get the update. Um, and then not to not to bring up I said it's funny because I joked about that I wasn't going to do this before the podcast started that I wasn't going to bring up Laura Dern. Um, but I felt similarly about like Laura Dern's performance in Little Women about this like quiet fury and anger that sort of like sits behind this character and like. That just feels like real, like that is Fox Rich in and Julia Garner in this life. as well. I think is a similar performance as well. Sure, yeah, um, I didn't think of it like that, but I mean, yeah, maybe that's a that's an interesting thought. Um, but yeah, like I think that there's this like really like there's this quiet fury about Fox Rich, and I really like that they give her this moment to like show that outburst in the documentary. Like she does take this moment where she sort of like monologues at the camera about how absolutely mm -hmm. infuriating it is that she makes all these calls and just like no one gives, you know, no one cares. Just no one cares at all about it. And I'm really glad that the documentary gave her, a, um, like at least showed her, I'm sure she did it many times, but showed her one of these times where she just has this outburst after being sort of dismissed and, you know, shrugged off and saying, well, we'll get back to you. I haven't got an update yet. Haven't, you know, haven't had the time to get an update yet or whatever. Uh, Cause it's infuriating. It's absolutely infuriating. And to imagine that experience, I mean, uh, this guy has never seen any of his children before. Right. So, uh, I mean, I, I'm sure he's seen them, right? But like, he's never been out, out of prison, um, you know, and, and got to spend time with them like that. And that's, it was really, it was really powerful, a really powerful film. Um, I found it, I mean, I guess to make the small axe comparison again, I, I found it to be very abrupt. Not that there was anything wrong with the short runtime, but it came to its conclusion much faster than I thought it would. I mean, I, mean, I guess I knew the runtime or whatever, right? But um, it, it ended very quickly, which there, again, there's nothing wrong with that, but it just felt, um, a bit off, but, but that was one of the things that I think held it back from even being further up my top 10 list as it's a very powerful documentary. And, uh, unlike Aaron, I think that it's been a really good year in documentaries and this is definitely one of them. Yeah. Um, I, and talking about the ending really quickly again, but I think it's the right amount of catharsis, right? It's sure. to your point, Scott, because you get to appreciate like, again, the, the joy, the hopefulness of that they're finally reunited and that they will have time together, but it's not like, Oh, you know, happy ending. The day is done, whatever. Uh, like yeah. there's, it is, it is very clear from the movie that you just watched that there is still a lot of fight left to be fought um, by people just like Fox Rich. Well, but that's the thing, right? Fox Rich, she comes off of after the movie as like this sort of almost superhuman figure, right? Like the, the wherewithal that she has, the, the perseverance that she has to keep on fighting. It just makes you think about all the people who aren't like that, right? And who are, broken down by the system long before um, yeah. Fox Rich is. And uh, so I, I think um, the movie does a good job of bringing in those perspectives as well, even though it's telling this one story. Uh, yeah. And not to, not to, I guess, just like 
reiterate something that I pretty sure I put in my letterbox review, but like this film tells this like larger sociopolitical story, right? That you're alluding to that. It's talking about this, you know, mass incarceration topic by choosing to not at all address the larger political, like sociopolitical issue and just telling the personal story. And yeah. it's, it's special and you're able to do that effectively. Paul, you're a fan of this one too. Yeah, this was in my teens. Um, you know, uh, a critic I like a lot named uh, Adam Naiman talked about this and it's like, it feels like an epic discovered in fragments. And I think like that's such a great way of putting the way this movie was found and discovered and the way that they transferred this footage into this kind of larger story of their lives. And yeah, one of the interesting tensions is like as much as Fox obviously loved her husband and like thinks that he should not be in prison. She also is harboring a little bit of resentment for sort of this fact that she has to raise their children alone. And it's not that it's all his fault, but like, there's a part of her that you can just tell is frustrated with the fact that she, it's all on her and that he, you know, he's in prison while she's having to do this stuff. And all of that tension, it still exists. It doesn't force her into being like, you know, this, um, you know, you know, this figure that's this messianic, like no problems at all, totally flawless. Like um, it shows her as she really is. And like a lot of their, the children also are, are struggling with, you know, not having their father around and they have to grapple with that. And even at the end, again, like, he's back, but that time that they got, they, they didn't have with him, they can't get that time back. You know, like um, that's what the movie's all about is the time gotten time lost time invested yeah. where you put your time, um, all of those different ideas. And I think it brings them together so well. Um, and honestly, I think like when I saw this, I had watched this at like 3am and I was kind of tired. I think if I'd watched it like more fully attentive, it might've connected even more for me. I still got emotional at the end, but like, to me, I think like maybe if I watch it again, I might discover um, a greater appreciation for um, everything that this movie does. Because it is, again, it's the macro in the micro. Fox Rich and uh, David Byrne, my two heroes of cinema 2020 right there. Um, all right. Our, uh, our next uh, movie on the list is one uh, that Paul and Scott Shelton share. Scott, you have it at four. Paul has it at eight. Uh, so, Scott, why don't you talk about Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always? Yeah, Never Rarely, Sometimes Always was one of those movies that I was really close to seeing it in theaters because it was like one of those films ride on the bubble. Um, I probably would have seen it if theaters had stayed open one week longer. But uh, alas, it, it, they didn't. And so I didn't get the chance to see it in theaters. And then I almost, you know, I almost saw it shortly after that. because They did bring it, I think, for like you could buy it on VOD pretty shortly after. And then. It didn't end up doing it because at that point, I mean, I didn't feel like I was in the right mindset because I knew it was going to be a heavier-ish film. And it slipped all the way till, you know, I'm like a month ago now. I think I saw this film about a month ago. And I'm glad I caught back up with it. Obviously, it is my number four. And I think that it's just a really remarkable film. And it really, <laughs> if you can muster the strength to do a double feature with the assistant with this, like it, it does feel like the right kind of double feature. Like you talk about, we talked earlier about like the banality of the assistant and although i think that there's maybe a little bit less of that in never rarely sometimes always it really feels like the most powerful moments in this film are the are the mundane moments right like the ones that hit you the hardest are just like either a small act that can be missed in other situations or a conversation that is not the point of what of what you're doing in that particular moment i don't want to give away spoilers but you know there's a particular you know interview scene where you know Sidney Flanagan's character is getting asked this questionnaire. Um, it also goes to the title of the movie, Never Really, Sometimes Always, which are the answer options to the questions that, I mean, like it was just so, it was an emotionally overwhelming moment for me in the film. And I just thought it was just so powerful. And, you know, from a filmmaker who, you know, I wasn't, I mean, I don't know, 
I guess I don't know. Has have they done it? Has Eliza? It was a third movie. Yeah, I mean, I'm not familiar with Eliza Hitman, and I think it is Sydney Flanagan's uh, acting or like like she's not an actor. She's not an actor. They she she just was discovered at a house party. Like she's not even a trained actor, which is crazy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, also also small thing, but I think I think they use uh, they them pronouns, but. I think oh, that one of the interesting things about it is just like it just feels like such a powerful performance. And again, for, coming from a filmmaker that I'm not familiar with and maybe is less familiar in general in the space, and from uh, you know Sidney Flanagan, who's a, an unknown, a literal unknown uh, from the space, like such an authentic portrayal. I feel like, and I think that you know one of the things that I that I shied away from this, one of the reasons I shied away from this film so early on is that it fe- like. You look at this film, you look at the plot description of this movie, like it seems like it is a film about uh, a certain thing. Like it feels like it feels like it's a film about getting an abortion, right? Like and and the and the struggle. And it is that, right? It is that is like the the crux of the film, like the the pushing what pushes the film forward. But it doesn't feel like the film's about that, right? Like it doesn't to me, it just feels like the film is about so much more. It's about, you know, persevering through struggles with the people around you. It is about you know, I mean, it's a, it's about ultimately, I feel like trauma and surviving trauma and all of its different forms uh, and, you know, violence against women. And for me, I was so impressed with how it was able to take a hot button issue like abortion, you know, sell itself as this type of movie to me, at least maybe, maybe I just missed it. And it wasn't, you know, so clearly a, a movie about that thing, but then like bury something that to me, that feels like much more relevant and much more powerful of a topic to talk about than just abortion. Although I realized that, you know, with the recent political administration that abortions and constantly a, you know, a topic in the spotlight and in a very hot button issue and not always been, you know, a right that people have felt guaranteed. Um, and so it is relevant in that sense. But to me, the, the nature of the film, the power of this film comes in not about the abortion, but about the relationships and the dynamics between people and, and what these two women are able to do in supporting each other through this journey. Cause they ultimately uh, go on a journey to New York city from rural Pennsylvania to seek out this abortion for Sydney Flanagan's uh, Autumn, I believe is her character's name. And so, yeah, just really amazing. A really, a really powerful, amazing film that is, was a different watch than I expected it to be. Not that it was any easier than I thought it would be to watch, but uh, more like difficult in a, in a, in a different way. And I really appreciated it. And it's, um, yeah, I, I can't recommend it more highly. Yeah, Eliza Evan is actually a pretty important director to me. Um, she also went to my university and she came and showed her her previous film Beach Rats there when it premiered. Um, and she spoke and um, had a chance actually to talk to her afterwards. And um, to me, like her emotional vulnerability as a person, I think translates so well on screen, I think. Um, the way the movie opens is I think such a great window into this character because it's at this talent show. A lot of people are doing kind of these goofier acts and um, she is... Uh, singing like this really melancholic rendition of the exciters. He got the power. And I think that the way that she performs that, that she's the type of person who would do that kind of performance. And like, you see the way that other people are kind of laughing at her, or not taking her seriously, you know? Um, and that sort of sets the stage for the, the kind of movie this is. And I think as much as I think some people ding this movie for like the sort of over-exaggeration of some of the, the male behavior, to me, this movie is mostly about, the way that it feels to be a woman more than maybe the way it is necessarily in terms of specific details. Like it feels like there are always men at every corner who are trying to take advantage in some respect. And I think like that stuff's so powerful. There's a moment where two characters touch hands that I think is the moment that broke me down personally. And that is like, I'm honestly getting chills thinking about it. I rewatched this last night and I kind of regret not putting it higher actually, because 
I think like again, what a like the two performances from from both Talia Ryder and Sydney Flanagan are like the stuff that like I just really cherish that sort of emotional vulnerability and you know it's kind of done in a verite approach but not that style it's a little different filmmaking um and I I don't know I just think that it's such a beautifully simple movie that doesn't try to I think make the story too big and too macro it's you know it evokes a lot of the stuff of four months three weeks and two days which I think is like a slightly more overwrought version of this story that's like really trying to drive home you know and that's that's one approach to go but to me, this is much more effective, and um, I felt for these characters much more. And it's a movie about the inanity of the process, you know, as much as anything is how ridiculous it is, like the process these women have to go through to exercise their bodily autonomy. And I think, like, the way that's translated is really, really effective. And yeah, just an amazing movie. Aaron, did you see this one? I did. I don't know what else I can really say though based on this movie i mean you guys really did sum up uh i mean this is a really powerful film um i forgot to add it to my list i sent to you that's why it wasn't on my list but um it definitely um not not a commentary on the unforgettableness of kind of the moments that were touched on here and um it's definitely a subject matter that um needs to be continued to be discussed in the public because these kind of issues are just kind of it's sad how they're looked the other way still so um yeah it's definitely a really powerful one not one i've rewatched yet um it's a definitely a difficult rewatch but i'm sure a worthy one but yeah definitely a great movie yeah it's a good movie um i think the assistant is i put it a little bit higher because i think the assistant or this, they both have the scene, right? They both have the one scene that is kind of like the centerpiece of the movie. The assistants being that HR scene, this one being when she goes to the, I guess, is she a doctor nurse in the, in the office? And, you know, there's the questionnaire and it is revealed, right. That she was basically sexually assaulted. Um, and uh, they're both incredibly powerful scenes. I think I like the movie around the assistant's, that one scene a little bit more than I like the movie around the scene and never really sometimes always. Um, there's just a couple, because I agree with Scott, that, like it's not really a movie about abortion. It's about, you know, the relationships, other stuff. Uh, I think the scene at the crisis pregnancy center is a little bit like, could have used a little bit more nuance um, or just not even been in the movie at all. I think if, because it, the rest of the movie is really about that. that, that, that's one scene that sticks out to me. Um, but I think it's a good movie, and I think the performances are really, really good. I think that both Sidney Flanagan and Talia Ryder deserve Oscar consideration. Absolutely. Uh, you, I, you won't get any disagreement from me there. But, um, what, what's okay. great about it, too, is that just what you're talking about there, like with, the, with that scene with like a social worker, nurse, whatever, it might, whoever that person might have been, like – I don't know. It's 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 even a step. It's even a step more nuanced or like more like deeper. I felt personally than just like oh, it turns out she's been sexually assaulted, right? It's it's like this idea that this person she was in a relationship with, right? Yeah. The way she described it is abusing her, and I think that those conversations, not that all those conversations aren't important because they are, like they absolutely are. But I think those conversations are so much more, I think, interesting because that's the harder one for so many people to picture, right? Like the idea of, I mean, like maybe, maybe it's simpler for, for us, but I've had conversations with so many older people resistant to the idea that you could, you could be assaulted by someone you're in a relationship with. Like, this is like an idea that's like, just still really, dis there's a big disconnect with. And so 
you know the undertone of that is, is is seeking into the is seeping into the movie in a really serious way is is really is really important to me. Yeah. Uh, okay, we're moving on to our next movie, uh, and our next movie I am going to be talking about uh, because it is my number four. It is Scott Shelton's number eight, and it's another documentary, Boy State, from Apple. This was an Apple TV Plus uh, original documentary, I believe, um, and uh, this is the story of uh, this summer camp throughout the country sponsored by the American Legion called Boy State. You can basically, this is basically in every single state um, or in a lot of states you can go. I don't think it, I don't think it's in Hawaii, but in fairness, okay. that's, that's in most, Scott has actually been to Boy State, but, uh, but yeah, so, but the, the idea behind the summer camp is that these teenage boys go and they, for a week, they start, start their own government. Um, and they learn about politics and, you know, what it takes to, to start your own government and run for elections and win support and stuff like that. This uh, documentary specifically focuses on uh, Texas, uh, Texas Boys State. I'm not sure exactly what year it was, but in the very recent past. And it profiles four kids specifically. And these are kids who are sort of all over the map ideology wise. I think they did an incredible job picking their test subjects. I mean, obviously, they probably have a lot of footage on other people as well. And these just happen to be the four best ones. But still, I think uh, the four that they find all have really interesting things about them. Uh, there's this kid, Ben, who is kind of ends up being the villain of the piece. Yeah, he's really bad. He, he, he becomes sort of like the political operative for one of the people who's running for uh, the main, what is the main office, main like office governor. that they're running for call? It's governor. Governor. It's like a state, um, instead of like a, that's why it's a state government, yeah, yeah. basically. Governor, Look, I, but, I think he channeled a little bit too much Ted Cruz in his personality. Yeah, well, Ben, yeah, and and the tactics that he uses are, and, it, you know, it's interesting to find him in that role, right? Because I feel like uh, with a lot of political campaigns and stuff nowadays, it's people like this, these like paid hired guns and operatives and stuff who are really sort of pulling the strings, running the show. So I think that's really eye-opening. Uh, but then you have definitely the more like likable characters in the movie, like, um like Steven Garza, who's the sort of the other guy who runs um, and is quiet, soft-spoken. But when he gets up to the podium and really just comes out of his shell and uh, it turns out to be this great orator, um, you have Renee, who's my personal favorite, who just was putting sick burns down on everyone uh, and was just kind of a boss. Um, and then Robert, who I think is one of the, maybe the most interesting one because um, he you think you know who this kid is at the beginning, right? Like you think he's a homegrown Texas, like Trump supporting guy. Um, but it comes out over the course of the movie like that. Oh, he he plays into that. He plays that role because he thinks that's what people wants, want um, to see. But as the week goes on, you see his like uh, perspective starts to change as he sees like how well Stephen Garza is doing, for example. And it causes him to reevaluate and reflect on the fact that, oh, he's actually sort of being completely disingenuous with what he's doing because um, he actually believes some things opposite to what he is up there saying, like, but he's saying them, right, because he thinks it'll help him get elected. Um, although I think there's an extra layer to it of like, even questioning the sincerity of him saying, oh, well, I actually, because I think abortion is the specific issue that it comes up, right? And he's like, well, I'm actually pro-choice. And I think you can even question the sincerity of, oh, is he actually that? Or is he thinking about how this is going to be perceived by people who are watching this movie and is therefore trying to save face a little bit, um, which is an even more interesting layer. But I don't know. I think this movie is incredibly eye-opening and profound. And 
I love the approach of the directors. Very sort of naturalistic. They kind of just like set the camera down. What happens, happens. They find like some really profound moments when they're not even trying, right? I think sometimes with movies, with documentaries like this, you could sense like the director behind the camera, like sort of guiding things gently towards like, here's what I want to happen. Uh, and so I'm just going to kind of pull the strings a little bit. You don't get that sense in voice data. I think you get the sense that everything you're looking at is, you know, playing out uh, how it would actually play out, you know, even if there weren't cameras there. Uh, and Jesse Moss and Amanda McBain are the directors. I think they do a, a phenomenal job. And it's also just a really, really entertaining documentary. I think it's in the tradition of something like Spellbound, um, the Jeffrey Blitz documentary about kids in the spelling bee, where it like profiles these kids from, uh, all different backgrounds, and in doing so, find some really incredible truths, especially in our own political moment, talking about Boise State. I think this movie is a must-watch. Uh, if you haven't checked this one out, I think you're going to love it. Scott? Yeah, it's it's quite it's quite the watch. Um, having been... Uh, my memories of Boise State are like fleeting at this point because it was, gosh, it would have been 20, 2012. So almost, almost a decade, like nine years, eight, nine years ago now. And so they're a little fleeting, but like, honestly, like Boys State as, as an interesting, an experiment as I feel like it is as the program, right? Not talking about the film right now as a program. It's like, I don't think that it it reaches like the, for me, it didn't reach like a revelation when I was there. Like it wasn't a formative experience. I don't even really stay in touch with anyone that I met there. That that's probably not the norm. I'm sure some people are a lot of people even probably stay in touch with like a couple people that they meet there, obviously, because it is like a full, you know, kind of 10 day, seven day, 10 day program. Um, and I just, you know, it was so interesting to, to watch this film about like an analog something that I went to write the Texas version of, I went to the Tennessee version and to watch this and, and see these people who are like taking it seriously, who do feel like they're getting something out of it. It's also a much larger one. It's Texas. Like it's like 1100 people, right? Like mine at Tennessee was a couple hundred. Um, so a little, a little bit different there too, but it's interesting that maybe like my perspective on it is in like this, something that I didn't really find anything like profound or revelatory about it. Like it felt almost like it was just another summer camp that I had gone to at some point. Right. Like it's so interesting to see the perspective of like a handful of people in this documentary for whom that wasn't the experience. Imagine at the same time that the other thousand people that are there probably feel the same, like might even feel the same way that I do. And I find that to be, you know, probably one of the more interesting facets of it right like they are laser focusing in on these people who you know they may very well become very important political figures in like texas government over the next 10 20 30 years um but the lack of engagement and the way that people treat them and engage with them over the course over the course of you know the doc you know the, the seven to ten days that they're there is like and like that i think that is that is probably the most damning aspect of pol- like engagement with politics that the documentary could have, right? Like, yes, there's people like Ben who are, you know, acting as operatives. There's people like, um, I'm for, is it Richard? I'm forgetting his name, right? Robert, 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 um, who are, you know, sort of bending right to what they perceive as like the desired opinion and perspective. And then there's just everyone else who like, I don't care. Like, I'm just going to vote for whoever I think is cool. Like, that sounds like super, super like mundane or like banal. But like, (laughs) that's literally how people vote. (laughs) Like, (laughs) it really is. And I think that they've discovered something that in in sort of like the lack of seeming profound, they've discovered something there probably. But maybe that's not news uh, to anyone. But to see it sort of laid out in this form over the course of two hours or however long this documentary was, 
I don't know. It's interesting. And it definitely reached the heights for me of, you know, one of the movies early on during COVID that really struck a chord and was near even higher up in my top 10 for a really long period of time. Yeah, I wrote this in my review, but uh, this movie confirms something that I've believed for a long time, which is that Bowling for Soup's song, High School Never Ends, is one of the uh, truest and realest songs that has ever been written. Uh, but Paul and Aaron, did you guys see Boy State? I did. I think one of the most interesting things about it, and it's such a small detail in the movie, but it's how quickly and dismissively decisions about women's rights and women's bodies are made when there are no women in the room to make them. And to me, like the fact that if you see every single time they bring up something like um, abortion, they're just like, oh, no, that's horrible. That never like, why would you ever, you know, there's no there's not even a consideration. Like even someone like Steven, like he's not going to run with that as a platform um, and stuff, stuff like that. Little nuances are, I think, what make it interesting to me, like it didn't feel as illuminate, illuminating as I think I would have liked it to be. I think some of the stuff I sort of already knew, sadly, like um, I did find the Ben character to be like one of my, you know, most disliked characters of any movie in the year 2020. Um, oh, just like the insidious nature and the way that he would argue. And um, it really shows how much your parents shape the way that you view politics. Right. Is yeah. like these, he's just, these kids are repeating talking points from their parents that like, it doesn't seem like there's really any basis for a lot of this stuff. So it's like, that is so crucial to the kind of people that they are. Um, yeah, the, again, the self-selection bias of this program just makes it so that it's not as illuminating as maybe it could be. I think like there, there's a reason that certain people would go to it, and that's the kind of person that's going to uh, you know react to this accordingly. Um, it's a really interesting doc. It's again, in a strong year for docs, it wasn't quite I think uh, at the level of some of the other ones. I loved a little more, but it was definitely uh, really fascinating. And I think like. For me, as someone who didn't know, who had never even heard of the Boy State program itself, I didn't know anybody who was a part of it before. Um, that was a bit of an eye opener, I think, for me. It was a yeah. bit of a ride. Yeah, and another interesting thing I think is just the fact that you know this kid Stephen Garza, right? There's some hope in the fact that he is able to win over a lot of people with just his sincerity, um, but he still loses the election in the end, right? I mean, spoiler alert, but um, which I think that in and of itself says a lot, right, about how certain politicians may, they, they may start a movement, they may make change, but they may not themselves be the ones in office who are, you know, implementing and instrumenting that change. There's actually a letterbox review from a kid who is at this specific yeah. voice day, and he talks about how apparently, like, Eddie blew Stephen out of the water in voting, and it wasn't even close, and it's like, it's funny how like narrative can shape the way you view certain events where like the, the way you frame stuff through these people kind of shifts, like how they interact with that whole thing. Aaron, did you see this one? Uh, no, I'm, I'm in Washington DC and it just takes a lot for me to get politics into me more than there already are in my entire life. So I know it's like very oversimplified. I've heard good things. When you mentioned spellbound, you have my attention because spellbound is definitely one of my favorite documentaries like in a long time when i saw that i love spellbound it. and go watch his narrative feature one of my favorite movies rocket science is an absolute delight but um it's great <laughs> wow the eye roll from paul i don't even think paul's seen it but uh i don't know why he's rolling his eyes the anna kendrick uh, of it all is just too much yeah <laughs> yeah well we so we strangely reviewed that movie on a podcast like way yeah. a couple of years ago i uh i also thought anna kendrick was too much in that movie well, Spellbound's great. So Spellbound is great. Um, all well, right. Sorry, sorry. Well, sorry. One last thing I want to say that about that is, um, 
and if I haven't forgotten what I was going to say, is that, oh, blow, blowing out of the water, like being a part of movement still even the, like losing an election can make, still make you part of a movement. And like that's basically what happened in the gubernatorial, gubernatorial race in Georgia from, oh, I'm how am I forgetting her name right now? She lost the race, but it's a huge Stacey Abrams. Stacey, yeah, Stacey. I mean, that's basically what Stacey Abrams has become in Georgia is like, I don't I mean, she didn't get blown out by, you know, I don't know what the margin is between Eddie and and Steven here, but. She lost, and 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 but then she became like she drove that movement forward more, and I mean, look yeah. where Georgia is now. So. And, and I think Bernie Sanders is like even the the wider example of this of like somebody who you know has lost twice now, but whose ideas and the movement that he has created are probably going to shape what Joe Biden does in office for however long he is president. Um, you know, just bring progressivism to, into the mainstream to a certain extent. But anyway. Um, next up, we have another movie that Scott and I shared on our list. This is my number six and Scott's number two soul. Uh, the, the latest from Pixar, uh, talk more about this one, Scott. Well, I think this would actually technically be the closest we got to a full consensus, right? Cause it was been both of your top twenties, Paul and Aaron, I think so. True, yeah. yeah. So look, I mean, soul is amazing. Like I, <laughs> it was really, I mean, it was a highly anticipated film for me. Pete doctor is my, you know, my favorite Pixar director. His last feature, Inside Out, is my favorite Pixar movie. And, you know, I've just been a big fan of the projects that he's sort of like masterminded. You know, Monster Inc. isn't my favorite, but everything else has been a huge hit uh, with me that he's done. And so getting what felt like from the trailers and sort of like the plot details that we were getting was going to felt like it was going to be a real compliment to Inside Out made it really exciting to me. And going in and feeling like, not only were those expectations lived up to to an extent, although I don't think it's as good as Inside Out. I'll go out and say that right now. But um, I, I think that it, it does live up to a lot of those expectations of themes and plot points and whatnot from uh, that I was expecting. And then also getting, again, like what felt like, <laughs> I don't know, uh, maybe this is maybe 2020 is the year for like Black Joy or Black Love in, in cinema. But I feel like Soul gives you a part of that, right? Like gives you some, a different, a slightly different take on that. But it gives you part of that. And I think a big part a big part of giving you that is Kent Powers' script and the what he was able to add outside of, you know, what might be typical uh fare from Pixar. I mean, they've they've had other similar um moments, maybe with like co- with a Coco or something like that, uh, giving you different perspectives than your maybe your more traditional white perspectives that you might get um in older Pixar movies and I mean recent Pixar movies too for that matter. But I, yeah, look, I, I think that it was a really powerful script um, in in certain ways, and and you know, contemplating life, the meaning of life, um, what what pushes you forward, what drives you to keep going, and then the most fascinating part of the whole movie when you get to what you're trying to obtain, you know, does it feel right? Right? Like, is is it what you thought it was going to be? Um, and sometimes that doing doing exactly what you want to do and and doing that thing you're passionate about. Does it always check the box for you of what, like what you felt like it was going to be when you got there? And and that answer can be no, and that's okay. Um, and then you need to figure out what to do with that. And I and I really liked that element of it. I really enjoyed uh, the. I mean, the anime. You talk. I think you, both of you guys talked about this. I mean, the animations is absolutely gorgeous. You know, Pixar <laughs> continues to to milk every ounce they can out of what might be more like traditional animation styles, so to speak, with computer generated and um animation types and you know from you know the outset when they did toy story to to now they just keep pushing it forward and it's really impressive and you know the the jazz element of it i'm a big jazz fan and i think that the sprinkling of 
jazz and jazz culture that you get into that is obviously uh, something that I really enjoyed as well. And then this whole visualization or world building around this idea of of an you know the before and the after, um, you know, in this sort of ethereal or you know, out of this world kind of feel. Uh, I think that world building is really interesting. I think it's something that that Pete Doctor has always been able to do a really good job with, with inside out. Um, you know, in you know, in the mind of some, you know, exploring what what actually the inside of a mind looks like from uh, from perspective of you know, mechanisms and working and whatnot. I think that he takes that and translates that. <laughs> and it's probably unfair to say he takes that and then and then makes it some, to the great before and the great the great beyond. But I, it feels like he does do that to some extent. And the world he creates around the you know these cute little souls look like in the great before. You know, it's very, it's very charming. It's just very, very charming. And I really like what they, some of the liberties they take with, you know, making the plot work. I understand. I think uh, I, I saw some complaints there around maybe some of those elements and, and not everything working or in terms of the combination of, again, what's going on in the great before um, and what, and what's happening on earth. And I, uh, I'll avoid plot spoilers, I guess, but you know, some of the developments that take place in the second and third acts of the movie but to me, they all worked really well, and I found it really, you know, equal equal parts heartwarming, but also reflective in a way about life that I think the best Pixar movies find find a way to make you feel and make you think about. And so, to me, again, Soul lived up to expectations, uh, even if it doesn't surpass the the you know the best of Pixar. Yeah, I mean, this is another great Pixar movie that has like some really sort of dark, deep themes at its heart. Uh, that you know you're are surprising to see you know in a movie not just an animated movie for kids or whatever but from like the biggest studio and animation the biggest name in movies right disney um for, to explore this sort of like nuanced stuff i think is is really interesting coming from disney but um yeah i i am you know find the idea really interesting at the heart of this movie about like yeah you can do what you're, you can, you can uh, get to where you think you are meant to be in life. You can be doing, doing what you think you are supposed to be doing in life and you still might not be fulfilled. Um, and you may need to look elsewhere for fulfillment. I think that that's, uh, you know, not, not a story you see being told in a lot of movies, let alone movies for kids. Um, and I like that Pixar is sort of preparing kids at a young age for, you know, some of these dark times that, come in life as much as the the happy times do. So um, yeah, it's a great film. Jamie Foxx is becoming one of my favorite actors. I just think he uh, brings so much soul to every single uh, role that he, uh, that he plays. Yeah. Sorry. I thought, I thought last year he, he was robbed of a nomination for just mercy. I think he was phenomenal in that movie, but um, I, uh, I think he adds a lot here to his voice role and, uh, yeah, the humor didn't wasn't necessarily like didn't necessarily work for me in this movie, but there's so much else to to offer that I think this is just another home run, and it you know it proves that even you know 20 plus years and 25 years into Pixar's reign, they're still finding a way to do new things, even if there is like the Pixar formula or whatever. I think they're still telling new stories, and uh, you know that bodes well for what is to come. Yeah, the, the jokes yeah. of it all, the Terry and Jerry bits for I mean, they they really worked for me. I thought that they were great, especially the stuff with Terry. I like that stuff a lot. Again, I sort of mentioned this earlier, but I just think like to put Tina Fey with like her creative history with people of color on her TV shows and stuff in this movie, in this specific role, really left a bad taste in my mouth. I think like there was so much potential too for a connection there if it had been 
a black voice actor, I think, like a younger black voice actor, some sort of mentorship role between those two characters, I think would have been so much more fulfilling. Um, and I just wish we got a little more into Joe as a person because we get those flashes, right, of the woman he, he never calls and the, the life that he led before. I kind of wish we got more of that and less of like the sort of like something I think Pixar gets too cute with like its oversimplification of like these abstract concepts. And I think like they're really cool ideas, but like to me, they drive almost too much towards that. And that's what really like kept me from like, again, having this in my top 10, top five, like, because I think like, you know, visually um, and, and you know, the the music and everything, that stuff is like really, really amazing. And there are just some kinks, I think, that are not totally worked out. Um, you know, there's some details that I think are great, but again, like just the 22 character in general, I thought was entertaining, but um, a real misstep in terms of the thematic heft of the whole movie. Yeah, I also, I liked it quite a bit. It was my number 15, so, and just... Yeah, it was just some of the like the spots that they didn't quite go to with regards to the darkness and the weirdness that I wanted them to. And also with Joe, I felt like his character was what I was missing the most of when they showed the peaks into his character. So I just, I don't know. I really did like it. I appreciated that it didn't didn't use kid gloves for a kid movie and. I think that the animation was absolutely beautiful though. And the music when he um, falls, that stuff is like some of the most beautiful filmmaking. Yeah. Yeah. Movie. And I wanted more of that when I met with the weirdness, like that was really, really some great stuff, but yeah. And I thought Jamie Foxx did a great job though. Um, in the lead that it, I, I think that, um, I don't know if he's done any voice work before this and any other animated, but, I thought he did a really great job of stepping into this and like just um, yeah. Uh, the Tina Fey thing, the Tina Fey stuff that uh, Paul just brought up. I now isn't going to be able to exit my head when I kind of see this Sorry. movie. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Probably not in my top 20 anymore. If I <laughs> like, I try to switch it with onward now because it was like, I was putting one of the two Pixar. I think both Pixar were actually pretty strong from this year um in all honesty and like very uh darker themes i think you could say um than usual for pixar in my opinion so um like i thought that this was really great but yeah that tina fey um critique and to me, it, 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 that shows how good it was that it, even despite that like it still was in my top 20 like still the filmmaking right. was strong enough to leave a real impact on me yeah and pete doctor is just incredible like going back through the pixar filmography over this year has been definitely Pete Doctor's my favorite director of Pixar. All right, uh, we are moving on now. Uh, and Aaron, this is our time to shine. Uh, my number three, your number two, uh, is the movie that Scott and I probably had the biggest disagreement about maybe ever on Some Like It, Scott. Uh, Charlie Kaufman's I'm Thinking of Ending Things. Aaron? Uh, yeah, this movie uh, should have disagreements. So there should be, I think... I'm sure there's plenty of people on both sides of the spectrum or argument with this. I love this movie. Um, I have spent two and a half hours talking about this movie already, but basically um, for me, this movie is not about piecing together the puzzle pieces and making everything make complete sense and solving every mystery and having everything tied up. It is all about the feelings, this movie, um, and just kind of um, that's hard to kind of put into like a short little 
podcast conversation here, but um, for me, uh, I'll start with the lead performances. I thought the Jessies were both incredible. Um, Clemens and Buckley, Clemens and Buckley, uh, especially Jesse Buckley for me though. I thought she was just really, really uh, excellent in this. And um, it was, it's just a lot of the movie is just a, conversation in a car to start off with especially and uh i mean i i just thought that it was um just some really really powerful like uh kind of conversations that are breached with a new relationship and uh i was in the beginning of a relationship when i saw this movie and i've yet to go and meet the person's family yet because of covid but um, it still is just interesting how it unravels and the quote unquote twist of the movie, which we're not discussing spoilers here, I get, but the twist of the movie, I don't think is meant to be hidden. So if you figured it out early on, I mean, I think that's by design. So like, this isn't a movie that's trying to hide the twists yeah. exactly. Um, but I think the twist is really, really uh, sad as it unravels through the movie with the main character and, uh, just overall the kind of feelings that you're left with at the end of the movie, um, you know, it, it will relate, you'll relate to it based on your own life experiences, I guess. So like if you maybe don't have some of the social anxieties of some of the characters or recognize them, it may just come across as a different way than it came across for me. But um, yeah, Tony Collette was amazing, obviously in this. And I do think this is like a horror movie. I know, like it's not traditional, but I think it's pretty pretty scary, kind of the some of the ideas that are going into the movie and just, um, yeah, it worked for me. Um, I don't know what, it, like how to really put it. It's, I've I've rewatched it several times um, and been able to gain a lot of different things each time out of it, and I just think it is a it it is a very Personal movie, like all Charlie Kaufman directed or written, but particularly directed movies are. It did remind me a lot of Synecdoche, New York at points, just kind of. Uh, and I think that Jesse Plemons did a really great job of stepping into a role that was probably made for Philip Seymour Hoffman, if I had to like guess. But Jesse Plemons does a very good job of kind of a surrogate. And that's my own that's my own theory. So I'm not attracting that to anybody else, but I did see a lot of Philip Seymour Hoffman, particularly as he entered into the janitor role the older janitor role. And just, um, yeah, like the subtle switches of the name and the occupation of the girl throughout the movie. If you're watching it with subtitles on right away, it says young woman, I think is the mm -hmm. name. Of it. So you're like the subtitles kind of spoil it a little bit because you're like, Oh, she's young yeah. woman. Not Alex, but, but again, he's not trying to hide it. Like, and yeah. he, he's actually said that himself too. There's actually like an interesting conversation that if you're into this movie, you should watch on YouTube between him, um, Boots Riley, Tamara Jenkins, Richard Linklater, and there was one other director in it. Um, oh, Yorgos Lanthimos. Um, and it was all of that. a few of my favorite things. Yeah. And David Ehrlich was moderating it. it it's really interesting. And it, talking about this movie and with Charlie Kaufman specifically. But he, that's one of the things he says, right, is that he's not trying to make it a twist or, you know, anything like that. Um, 
But um, yeah, I love this movie. I think uh, I, I agree with what you're saying, Aaron, that it's not like it, it, it is a little frustrating to me that um, people will give up on it. Like just, well, this doesn't make any sense. Uh, well, I think like you are there are so many to me, there's so much so many themes packed into the movie that it's kind of just about what what connects with you? What do you latch on to? Um, yeah. For me, it's some of the like I find some of the stuff about like the creation of art really interesting and. There's this whole um, segment with her reading the review of uh, Pauline Kael's uh, Pauline Kael's review of Women Under the Influence, which I really liked because it, if you know Kaufman's history of like he's he has been that guy of like oh I'm I'm really upset about these bad reviews so I'm going to attack critics and stuff like this. This is more of like a reflective moment of him because it, you know it's really interesting. She goes on this really long uh, recitation of the review and he's kind of like pushing back on it while there, while she's, you know, in the middle of it. And then at the very end, he's like, well, I see what you're saying. Like that's his first line after she gets to the end of the review. And it's almost like you can hear Charlie Kaufman being like, okay, I, I don't like when I get negative reviews, but I guess I get it sometimes. And so that that's kind of interesting to me to find in this type of movie. Um, yeah. The whole like tortured artist, he creates this person who is just like to, whose sole purpose is kind of just to, validate him and um, lift him up. And, you know, he's piecing back through these past traumas with his parents and we're seeing maybe how his uh, parents have caused him to, you know, become this sort of neurotic person who, again, feels like he's a misunderstood genius when maybe probably he, it is, it is he who is at fault for why he is misunderstood. I don't know. There, there, there's a lot of uh, ideas to toss around. It's also a funny movie. Like there are some really funny parts in this movie. One of, uh, which is, you know, they've had they had this whole conversation about the hog being killed after like being infested by maggots or whatever, and then they go inside to eat the meal, and there's this giant ham on the table, and Tony Collette is like, oh, everything here was raised was uh, straight from the farm, is farm fresh or whatever, and Jesse Buckley just kind of has this look on her face, like looking at the ham, like, oh lord, uh, and that's it's really funny, but um, yeah, and I Jesse Buckley is amazing. For second straight year for me that she is my like top of my list for best actors. Uh, I think yeah. uh, the dual performance, but it's like, it's this like constantly evolving performance of like, oh, there's like, she's getting a little skeptical of what's going on. She's a little curious, whatever. But then like immediately sucked back to like at something totally different. And like, it's like nothing ever happened. Like she's, you know, completely normal again, because because it is him, right? I mean, we're spoiling it a little bit, but he is like controlling her basically with his memory and spoiling uh, it a little bit, you say. <laughs> but uh, yeah, he is yeah. like controlling her, and I think she does such a great job of like playing someone whose behavior is just not quite right. And like er when she gets to that moment of like realization, like she's about to figure out what's going on, it's like, oh no, we're snapped back because he is, you know, again, he's controlling everything, and I don't know, it's. It's hard to articulate, but it's really difficult, I think, uh, and complex what she's doing. But uh, she does it extremely well. Uh, and Jesse Clements, I read the book before I saw this movie. Um, and oh. I I actually saw, I, when I saw that he was playing the role, I was like, this is perfect. Like, I think he was a, he was, uh, a perfect bit of casting for this role. And so yeah. I think and this I didn't movie know it was even based on a book before I saw the movie. So, yeah. um, and then I did read the book afterwards, but... 
another part that I really attach to besides a lot of the kind of just depressive existential thoughts that are Charlie Kaufman that I just in general recognize in a lot of his movies and is that everything that Jesse Plemons character kind of made his identity was from outside media. And as yeah. people who are part of like, you know, a film trivia, you know, film world, a lot of people will meet, make their entire personalities based on not their own experiences, based on what they're obsessed with. It's like the hard to swallow exactly. pill meme that says your interests are not your personality traits. And for this, the office is liking the office is not a personality. Exactly. <laughs> like, you know, whatever it is and knowing Paula Kane's review or knowing being able to quote, um, I forgot the name of the um, poem, but like being able to quote, and they poem, meet at a tr- information doesn't make you a genius. And, and they then, meet at a trivia night too. Like, right. You know, and, and, and most likely, like, and you know, most likely what happened at that trivia night is that they didn't even have a relationship. This was a socially awkward. No, that's exactly what happened. Yeah. So it's like, and then it comes to the forefront by the end of the movie. And it's just like, there's so much of this movie that it's like, you know whether you relate to it or not you can recognize it and whether it works for you or not it's the mileage will vary but i think this is a movie that i don't know many people who are just like middle of the road with um it's really it's either gonna really hit you in my opinion or it's really gonna bother you and take you out of the movie and you're gonna feel like it's just kind of self-masturbatory like all of the conversations in the car before it's completely clear, it's just like reference after reference after reference. And I'm kind of going against what I said earlier with Mank, where I'm like, you shouldn't have to know all this to like the movie. But the more you know about the things being referenced, the more it adds to the movie, I mean, for sure. And so, you know, in my opinion, so. I feel very differently about that stuff. So the reason that I really, I like this movie. Um, the reason it didn't necessarily connect to me is like, I've read Pauline Kale. I've read Rotten Perfect Mouth. I don't know if this movie necessarily does anything particularly interesting with the stuff that it pulls from those. It just sort of recites them. And I don't know if like the context that it puts it under really makes any more meaning for me. I feel like that sort of was just like, I don't know. Like, I feel like in a feint towards existentialism, but it didn't feel like it was really reflective about a lot of these ideas that are in this content that they're reciting. So to me, that was sort of the shortcoming of this. At the time, I, I thought this was going to be like one of my favorite movies of the year. Like I love Charlie Coffin in general. Like I love Jesse Buckley and Jesse Plemons. Um, and I love the idea of these conversations being almost the entire movie. But for some reason, it didn't stick with me. Like I didn't find myself thinking about it um, even a couple weeks after. Like for the week after, I was like, oh, this is great. Like I'm, you know, this is on my mind. And then it sort of really just evaporated in a way that my favorite movies of the year just didn't. And I think that it's it's really well made and really well acted. Um, Abby Quinn is in this, who is also in Shit House. She's the spin the bottle girl in Shit House, and she's the girl at the ice cream store in this, which is kind of a funny connection there. But yeah, for me, I I thought this was going to connect so much harder than it did, and I love the sequence at the end. I think that dance sequence is really. Oh yeah, I, I should have um, that. I love it. It's beautiful. That's my favorite. That's probably my favorite thing in the whole movie. But to me, it was it was something that like on paper was so fascinating and amazing and introspective, but to me, it didn't feel like it really said anything that interesting. So that's where I was left. Scott, rain on the parade. <laughs> yeah, look, I I will not say, I don't think this is a podcast about like taking dumps on movies, but I don't think this film was for me. I didn't have any of the context for 
anything in this movie. I haven't seen any other Charlie Kaufman films. I haven't seen Oklahoma. I haven't seen like anything that feels like the context you need for this movie. And I more so than any other film or TV property that Netflix has, I would be so curious to see what their viewership stats are like for this film. Cause I'm sure a lot of people turn this on. Like they put this at the top of their Netflix page, like halfway in. And I'd love to know what the average amount of time people spend with this movie is not because it doesn't make sense. I just think this film is boring. Like this film is really boring really? for most wow. people. I think, I think That's for most wild. people, they will, they will find it extremely boring. Um, and it's not because they don't understand it that they'll turn it off. It's because they think it's boring. Um, and that, that that was my main takeaway from the movie. I think that, I mean, I, I like the performances to an extent, but everything just feels so inaccessible in this, in this movie to me. I think especially everything after the, this, the, they go to that, they go to and have the family dinner, like everything after that just feels like so inaccessible uh, um, to me. Like, sure. I, I definitely hear what you guys are saying around like the twist being, um, not like not hidden. I think that's totally fine. I think that the the ending note about this like all you know being a fever dream of sorts is is an interesting point. But I think I'd I'd fall back on what Paul was saying around like I, I just don't think this film had anything meaningful or interesting to say to me, right? Like to that's just my experience with it. Um, I found it pretty boring. I honestly found it hard to stay awake uh, during the movie at times. But maybe that was just a, a long. I'd had a long day maybe before I watched this. I think it's actually a movie that is weirdly well served being on streaming because I think, especially for people that well, no one would go see this movie it. in theater. I know I'm going to Well, I, I think that maybe that's part of it too, but I think just the actual the experience has a built-in audience. I think. Yeah. Um, I think bot- just the, the ability to try and unpack and to go back to it to have subtitles if you need them to understand everything that's going on. Like yeah. it's something that I think like you might get lost in some of the references and some of the ideas and the ability to go back and be like, oh, I'm going to watch this like five minute scene again to get a little more context. Like that's a movie that's really well served for that. Yeah. Look, the dancing is really well choreographed. Like, absolutely. Like, really, it was really enjoyable to watch at that point. But yeah, I don't know. I, I, it completely missed me. All right. We are on to a couple of movies here. We're almost time for our number one, but we do have a couple of movies here that made three people's lists. Uh, so, very close to being complete consensus picks. But uh, the first one of those is Mangrove, which I did have in my top 20, but I am the person who didn't have it in their top 10. Um, Aaron and Scott both had it at five, uh, but Paul had it at three. So, uh, Paul, why don't you uh, start by talking about Mangrove? Yeah, I think a lot of people, it seems like, really responded to the second half of this movie, not as much the first half. I think that, um, to me, I love movies that are like that, where it has it's one movie in the first half and it makes a flip. And I think the way it transitions is really smooth, and that's why it really works. Um, I thought Malachi Kirby was like an absolute dynamo in this thing. Like to me, like I know Sean Parks is like the central performance that the movie's kind of anchored around, but to me, Malachi Kirby is like this crackling force of energy where even places where he doesn't necessarily explode emotionally, you can feel there's a turmoil there beneath the surface that I think he communicates really well. And McQueen is just so good at doing, you know, shot, you know, cutting to the right face at the right moment, um, making you see the right image associated with the right words. And I think that, um, his sense of time and intimacy in this kind of movie where it is like it's kind of a big scale kind of cultural hangout movie in the first half and then it becomes this courtroom drama um this is just everything that trial of chicago 7 is not i think it's incisive um it's meaningful it i think actually has stuff to say that's not just like sort of lazy pandering like i think this movie just has so much more energy um 
and craft. I think the filmmaking in this, especially the dire- the direction, you can see the difference in those two movies and which one's directed by Aaron Sorkin, which one's directed by Steve McQueen. And I think that the way Steve McQueen, you know, tells this story allows the, you know, the drama to be itself. It doesn't, you know, it's not overdressing it with all of this outside influence and all this crazy whipsnap dialogue. It's like letting the story speak. Um, and yeah, I, again, Sean Parks is also great, but Malachi Kirby is the one that really stood out for me. And I think that the scale of this thing, like it, the, the big stuff and the small stuff, all that stuff really works. And the balance I think is really well handled. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, I had this at my number five and it was in the sort of range of movies for me that like, I think my four through six really felt interchangeable uh, to me in a lot of ways, like never really, sometimes always this and one night in Miami. And this came out at five. It very easily could have been four for a while. I debated putting it even higher. And I, (laughs) the thing, the the thing that resonates with me the most is that like, this is, this is what I wanted from the trial of Chicago seven for sure. Like I felt like I just really got um, everything I wanted from that movie out of this one and in terms of like i guess going back to this idea of like curation of the small axe films like i'm so happy this was the first one i watched because i think that not that i would have like lacked motivation to watch other ones if you know any of the other four had had come first but like this one really i feel like set a tone and a balance that oftentimes the other movies only had one or the other and i think that i really appreciated uh, something that gave me like the full picture of what small acts was. And uh, that full picture was really powerful to me. I, I agree like that the hangout nature of the first half of the movie really works. I find, although I found it, I, I mean, although there's no like reason on paper wide, like while this, why this community to me was like super accessible, but I just found like really engaged with this whole notion of the community that is created around this sort of like central restaurant in the mangrove. Right. And I think that what you see kind of unravel, although, is fairly predictable, but like the, the way that it tells you that story and the way that it shows you the way it's acted out, the way it unfolds narratively and the choices it makes with the pace of the presentation, I found to be really effective. And yeah, the, the performances mentioned already, so no, no need to reiterate that, but I'm totally on board with that. I'd, I'd even throw Letitia right in the mix, although I do think she finishes third to, to the other two, uh, but she's really strong as well. And looking forward to what all three of them might do in the future, because I don't, I mean, besides, I guess, I mean, Letitia Wright, I guess, is the biggest star uh, of the three. I've never seen the rest of them in anything else before. Yeah, I, I didn't look up if they'd been in anything else. But, I mean, I think a, the nature of a lot of what Steve McQueen was doing with Small X is that he's trying to, you know, pluck out authentic, real talent from, you know, these communities and putting them on display. So we'll see if they use that as a springboard to other things or if it was like, all right, we did, we made the film we wanted to make and I'm not interested in having a career. But it'll be interesting to see. Jack Loudon plays a good lawyer as well. Uh, Aaron. Yes, I uh, 100% agree with the takes here. Um, After I saw uh, Trial for the Chicago 7, I felt so kind of uninspired by a very inspiring actual story just from how it was. It just I really wasn't a big fan of Trial of the Chicago 7 and how Sorkin approached it. So before I even knew about I didn't. I just kind of stumbled upon Mangrove when the Small X series was released and not knowing too much about it besides Steve McQueen. I was like, okay, Steve McQueen, I'm in. And this man, after I finished Mangrove, I was like, this is what I wanted out of Trial of Chicago 7. And then I hate to immediately think that about a movie and like shortchange the movie itself, but you really can't help but do so with how closely these were re- released together and how similar of themes they're trying to approach. And, Mangrove was just so authentic 
with how it approached. They're even set in the same year, I think, right? Aren't they both set? Yeah, exactly. The, the yeah, year? same. Yeah, nineteen sixty-eight for both of them. Uh, maybe this. Yeah, they were both sixty. And so it's just like that. Just adds to it. and um, it also it it. I don't know as much about the race relations in England. So to learn about another, you know, country and that issue. I also appreciate it. It just made me further dive into that from a personal standpoint. So, um, you know, and Steve McQueen uh, just has a really effective way of, I, I haven't seen a Steve McQueen movie I don't like, and I've seen all his movies now. So um, I just was really appreciated the approach of the first half and then the switch of the gears in the second half. And yeah, it just is, it really was what I wanted Trial of Chicago 7 and what I expected Trial of Chicago 7 to be. And that's what I got out of Mangrove. It was just a really perfect start to that series. Definitely, I don't think you could have started with any other from the series. Yeah, the community stuff is, I think, just really strong and under, I think, underappreciated by a lot of people. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. The one thing I want to highlight, Paul, you mentioned that Steve McQueen has a, a good eye for when to like, put the right face on screen stuff like that when they're reading the verdict and Frank's face is the one that they mm -hmm. sit on. Um, I think that says so much about who this guy was and who, what he meant to this community of people um, that it makes a lot of sense, but it's also a choice that not a lot of directors would have made. I think uh, to leave the camera on him for the entire verdict reading um, segment. I think that that's uh that's a very good choice by Steve McQueen. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's a powerful movie. Look, look, I like the trial of the Chicago Seven. I'm a huge Aaron Sorkin stan. This I'm is surprised it wasn't it wasn't in your tent, honestly. Like I just thought it really no, 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 no. I, I understand its shortcomings. I just find it, you know, entertaining in that Sorkin way. Um, I mean, this this is the better film. I, I totally agree with that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, I think I think this one's really good. Uh, and it was it was my favorite of the small X films as well. It just missed my list at number yeah. What Scott I said about his four through six that's my honestly five through one. Um, I love I had five five star movies this year, so I'm not I don't I'm not ashamed to say it. Um, and my five star shouldn't be. And my five star is just like when I leave that movie and like I just I'm like so glad that I now have it, like those memories. So it's like very, very feelings based. Like some of my five star movies are not five star movies. I get that. And like, and I'm not just, but they are, they're your, it's, you know, yeah, exactly. It, yeah. And so like, for me, like this year I had more five star movies than last year um, for me. So, I mean, lovers rock was five stars for me. I mean, it's like, I wish I had that experience, but I'm glad that you did. Wild. Yeah. And like, and then like, I'm thinking of ending things like, definitely five stars like whether like i mean whether it works for everybody or not like i don't think that it you know a movies need to always some of movies i really like do other movies i like don't but like yeah with the with mangrove it's one that was also maybe it may have been four and a half stars but like it's really close to five that five star feeling like so like it's just like it's just a really in, important movie. I hope people seek it out more than they have. Like I think that slowly the buzz has started to build on Small X. Like compared I mean, to just like the worst at marketing. Like I, but I don't either know. way, like people can come to it still. Just like yeah, yeah. I but, just wish but, I just wish that that 
they had figured out their marketing strategy more for some of their films. Last thing I want to say, let's let's get more courtroom drama. We got two this year. They're both good. Maybe um, if you put them in your top 10, directors would be more likely to make them, you know. <laughs> Pander. Okay, okay. I, I see how it is. Uh, but, you know, it, actually, though, you know, like legal dramas, courtroom uh, movies, you know, there are obviously are, are some of my favorites for obvious reasons. But they're also like a, this trapped in the 90s genre that I feel like needs so, – we're having a little bit of, re- of a revitalization like dark waters last year was obviously a you know huge peak and then we had two this year that were really good um no time so in the courtroom in that movie keep it up. like no time <laughs> in the courtroom in dark waters yeah yeah at the very end right the the great final scene he says i'm still here um anyway uh our final movie before we get to our number ones guys and this is another movie that appeared on three lists i actually think this movie had a would have possibly appeared on all four lists however scott has not had the chance to see it yet but yeah unfortunately uh, this is my number eight paul's number four and aaron uh mr a24 himself's number three uh minari why don't you say more about this film uh from lee isaac john mr five-star um, field <laughs> yeah it's got that five-star feel for sure dr uh, five-star yeah. feel good i mean five-star feel goods all the five-star feel goods um this is definitely one that was high, probably my like number one most anticipated of the year after just seeing a brief like five seconds of a trailer because that's how much of a trailer I'll watch before I decide not to watch the trailer from what I want to see. But yeah, I just thought this was a really beautiful movie. Um, really just, I feel that um, it really made use of the time it took place in without making it like a caricature like a lot of 80s stories did and it was just felt um i like very very true to life i haven't got i wanted to get to revisit this one which i didn't i've only gotten to see it the one time so um i just i just know that i really liked what i was watching the entire time and um particularly uh the young um the young character uh david I Alan just him. Yeah. Alan Alan Kim. Kim. Yeah. Uh, I just, I really, it's one of my favorite performances of the year. And I just, I really, there's something about when a kid performance is really good and emotionally just can be engaging on that level that it's just so effective. And they just did a really great job with all of the casting I thought in this movie, honestly. Um, and I just, I, I mean, I really love Steven Yoon as well. I just like think he makes some really great choices as the parental figure. And just like in general, um, this is a movie I'm excited to revisit. Um, and I just knew when I was done with it, it was uh, and one of my favorite H24 movies ever, honestly. And that's like really high praise from Mr. H24 shill here. Like, and I just thought that it was it was still like experimental. Like we come to hope from a lot of a 24 movies, but it just was done in a way that was like a lot more emotionally endearing than a lot of a 24 has come to be. So like, I was just like really appreciated the lightness that this movie brought. And it was just really welcomed at the end of a long 2020. Um, it was like a really bright, you know, ray of sunshine, which I won't describe my number one as, but, um, yeah, again, my one through five, five star feel, I, you know, great. And, uh, let Paul talk about this because Paul's going to have way more interesting things <laughs> to say than me. 
You're really, I'm really the opener here. Uh, yeah. So Minari, um, I luckily saw this at, through Middleburg Film Festival, which is like this online film festival in I think Virginia. Yeah. Um, and this is one of those movies that I watched and I watched immediately afterwards, partly because I loved it, partly because I knew I wouldn't be able to watch it again for like five or six months. Um, to me, I understand why the focus is on Alan Kim and Steven Yeun, and they are amazing. But I want to talk about Hanye Ri's character, Monica, the mother. Um, that's maybe the one that I connected to the most emotionally. Um, my family also came to the U.S. from Asia. My family from Japan, not from Korea. But to me, the the stuff that you know her with her, dealing with her character, um, it's, you know, her cultural identity is like slipping through her fingers, and like religion is like her last sort of grasp at that. And she feels it. Um, you know, it's like this piece of a life that she would give anything to return to, but she just can't. And she sacrificed so much for this family to try and make a better life for her children that um, her cultural identity is like totally going by the wayside. And to me, like that part is what really broke me down. I think just thinking about, and I think it's, a, I've noticed it's, it's a character that it seems like people who watch it have less empathy for than I think some of the other people just because she seems kind of harsh and, um, she doesn't seem as as kind or, or as patient as the rest of them. But to me, like that frustration is something that I feel personally connected to really strongly. And it's such a beautiful story. I think about everything these people give up to immigrate to the U S and all the challenges they still have to try and overcome. And, um, you know, they, they ha only have each other. And even that sometimes is, is, is difficult to juggle. I think to ha have this family as a unit struggling to stay together, um, the music in this movie is absolutely staggering. I think, um, you know, it's, it's Emil Mosseri, who's like become one of my favorite composers, even though he's only done like three movies between this Kajillionaire and last black man in San Francisco. He's like one of my favorite film composers of the moment. And I think this music really underscores so many of these moments. And like, you know, the titular Minari plant is like so emblematic of the family, their, their resilience, um, in the face of impossible circumstances is uh, something I was really bowled over by. So, Yeah, I, what I love about this movie, and I think we just need more movies about the American dream with non-American characters pursuing, right? Like, I think um, that seems like a simple thing, but we just don't get enough movies um, maybe about that. And I, uh, I think this is a really good one. It's very warm and empathetic. Um, I love Adam Kim's performance. I am going to be beating the drum for him to be in the best supporting actor race. But um, I think it's one of the best child performances, you know, in, in recent years for sure. <laughs> and yeah, I don't know that I have too much more to add. Um, I think that uh, E24 has now churned out a couple of really good Asian family dramas over the past couple of years. Um, that uh, makes me excited uh, that maybe this is another uh, subgenre they can sort of corner the market on. Japanese um, next, conclude the trilogy. You know, sure, yeah. The Chinese American um, and then the Korean American and then yeah. uh, one left. Um, but but uh, yeah, I, I'm in the same with Aaron that I really want to rewatch this as well to have more fully formed thoughts because I also watched it through Goldberg, like Paul, but I didn't turn around and watch it again. So I haven't really had an opportunity to. Uh, to stick in, and uh, I'm sure I'll be able to say more things about it then. But um, it definitely sat with me a lot on a, on a first watch, and uh, I just think seeing these types of stories told and these people represented is um, I can't overstate enough the importance of that.
Yeah, Minari is, is one of the two films that I, I, you know, is the biggest disappointment to have not seen before making this list. And like, uh, I'll make my judgment when I get to watch it in the next, you know, weeks or months. Um, but I'll, I'd be surprised if it didn't end up or around, you know, in, in or around my top 10. Just and I think for, for me, if I was a critic, I would maybe not put it in 2020 because like I think the point of those lists is like to recommend to people to go and watch like right away. Whereas like it's just my personal list of stuff I've seen. But I think like this and other movie we'll talk about later, like I think you could go either way on whether this is a 2020 or 2021 movie because a lot of people haven't been able to watch these, you know, and, and if you haven't, yeah. you obviously should. But it's hard to have like thoughts about what we feel about it because, you know, they, they haven't really been released wide at all yet. I don't even I mean, it technically hasn't even had a limited release yet, right? It had a little window. It had a little temporary. Um, I forget what service it was, but they did like a virtual cinema one week thing where anybody could the sign Lincoln up. Lincoln Center Film Festival. Yeah, yeah. Well, not but, festival. Lincoln Film Center, I think. Yeah. Well, no. no so I tried to watch it, and there was it was sold out. I mean, I guess any any theater can sell out in a limited release, but like I don't know, yeah. it wasn't completely available. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. All right. Well, it is time, guys. We have four movies left, and they are our number one movies of 2020. Uh, we are going to start out with Paul and his number one, which is also Scott's number nine, Kelly Reichert's First Cow. Yeah, Kelly Reichert is legitimately one of my favorite living filmmakers. She's someone I discovered in college. Um, shout out to Ryan Powell, my, my American independent film uh, professor who, who showed us um, a series of her movies in the theater and I gained a relationship to her approach to, to you know, she is like the queen of slow cinema, which is like an actual movement. And this is a beautiful, heartbreaking, touching movie that really is most centrally about friendship and the thing that we're willing to do for the people that we care about. Um, and the two characters at the center of this, um, played by John Magaro and Orion Lee, like in two of my absolute favorite performances of the entire year, um, are just, it's just some remarkable stuff that I think, um, I, and it's it's sad that this is a movie that sort of went not under the radar. Obviously, critics love it, but I wish that it had been a little more out there for people to see just because it is like one of her more accessible films, I think. And it's just like all her movies, it's so gentle and, and heartwarming. But um, there's a little bit of a, a thrill to this. And the framing device really is even more moving, I think, where you see what, you know, the, the thing you see at the beginning of the movie and how it recontextualizes what happens at the end. And that makes it hit even harder, I think. Um, oh man, I just get kind of emotional thinking about this movie just because like it is about these people that time forgot I think that our country forgot that our world forgot people who are trying so hard um, to have their own version of the American dream you know they have these goals of moving out west and um, they try everything they can you know they, they make these cakes in an attempt to, to raise money to get out there and the world's not kind to them you know they, they talk about how this is a place that history hasn't gotten to yet um, and all the same history is still somehow repeating itself with the way that sort of the people that are lower class are treated by, you know, early stages of capitalism in, in the United States and um, how they're pushed down by people like the Toby Jones character who like, even though he's being nice to them, it's like, you know, it's only because they provide him a service and they're kind of a novelty act. But these two men and everything they're, they're willing to do for each other, um, the lengths that they go to help each other, you know, try and achieve their goals and, um, continue to live their lives in happiness is just something that I found so profound. Um, it is by far my favorite movie of the year. It's a movie that I, I've only seen twice and I don't want to necessarily watch it all the time because I, I find it so special and my time with it is cherished and I don't want to wear that out. Um, but it's a movie that I think just on all levels really hit me on 
basically almost any level that I could as, as a movie. And it's even got a little bit of genre stuff in there. It's a little thrilling. I think when, um, when you kind of least expect it to be, um, and it's just, yeah, a movie I was so touched by and, um, I cried and laughed and, uh, it's, it's the movie that sat with me the most. And I thought about the most. And, um, there, a lot of times I was watching movies that aren't bad, but I was like, you know, I kind of would just rather be watching first cow. Um, and that feeling that it gives me at the end was, um, yeah, just unlike anything I saw this year. So um, it's definitely the movie I think that I will remember the most from this past year. Yeah, it's actually super suspenseful. You mentioned like the thrills, like the one scene where he's by the cow and like yeah, yeah. Uh, the, uh, the other, you know, for the people from the other farm have come over and it's a quite, the, the cow oh. is kind of like nuzzling up to him. And real you know, quick, Lily, Lily Gladstone, who is also incredible in certain women, is like an actress that's not really working a ton. She, it seems like she pretty much only works with Kelly Reichard, but like she's incredible in a small role in this. And like, I hope that she, if she wants to, that she gets a career that's a little more even expansive and she gets to play more stuff because she's an amazing actress. Scott, you had this at nine. Yeah, no, I, I, I think the the slow cinema, I, I haven't seen anything else by Kelly Reichert before, but the slow cinema thing makes a lot of sense because I think like the way that I would capture this movie like really succinctly is that it's slow but never boring. I found the, the film like really engaging, um, it, equal parts like beautiful, like the opening five, ten minutes is just, uh, you know, John Magaro's character just like picking mushrooms in this like field and then he hears, you know, some twigs crack and he runs off because he's worried he's about to get attacked by, you know, someone or something. And in that, that sets the tone for the whole film. And it feels like under, you know, the majority of directors, an opening scene like that would probably like not set a tone for the movie that I'd be like super excited to watch. But the way that it's presented in the film and then how it carries through as, you know, kind of the, the heartbeat of the film also is just, I don't know. It's really breathtaking in a way that it, it, I guess in a particular way that there aren't many other films I felt like I watched this year or even the last few years that capture that same sort of energy that the movie has. But, and then, yeah, like <laughs> I guess to, to be a little bit more lighthearted, I was just like so confused why like maybe it was in like the opening scene of this movie from Arrested Development <laughs> on discovering the bodies uh, or I guess like the, the, the skeletons and stuff. And I was just like, what on earth? You seem so some respect on the name of Alia Shaka. Yeah, um, that 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 did take me out of it, but thankfully I wasn't taken out of it again because you know that's that's just a moment for you to reflect on uh, once you get to the end of the film. And uh, I really, yeah, what what came between the beginning and the end also really worked for me. I think the relationship that you see develop and the struggle that you see these guys sort of go through, both ostensibly but also it feels like sort of subtext to the film, is really again, it's, it's really affecting. It's really effective. And it just works. Like, I think that's like just kind of like period. It works. And the performances are really strong. I think that, again, the tension, even in the slow, even with the slow pace of the movie, almost the glacial nature of the film, the tension that arises in, you know, a handful of scenes, not just one or two moments, but a handful, uh, really, again, really effective. And I, if this is her most accessible, I'm glad I came to it first because it's, it's definitely inspired me to want to go back and watch things, um, you know, watch things like certain women and um, what's it? Night. Night, Night moves. moves. Night moves Night. is pretty accessible too. That's probably the Night other. Like, good. Yeah, no, I agree. It's accessible. Yeah, and then you know, I'm, I'm sure she has several more too to to check out after that. But yeah, it's an an interesting debut for me in in coming to her filmmaking, and I'd be very curious to see what I think of her full filmography because 
you know, it, it feels like the kind of movie, I mean, this is really true for every movie on my list, but it feels like the kind of movie that I wish I'd gotten to see in sort of like the solace and quiet and blackness of a movie theater. I had um, tickets like, to see this in LA. I was supposed to go um, with two friends of mine from Australia. We were supposed to all go and hang out in LA for a couple of weeks and see a bunch of movies. And this was one of the big ones. And hmm. yeah, that was dashed sadly uh, last March, but I'm just glad I, I got to spend time this movie at all. Really. Yeah, absolutely. Aaron, I believe you said you forgot this one as well. To put on <laughs> I saw this so long ago. I thought it was in 2019. So um, for some reason, I didn't realize that this was like must have been February. I saw this. Well, it, it debuted at Telluride also in 2019. So it's listed as 2019. Yeah, and that, I think that just reason. screwed me up when I was going back through to add to my list. In all honesty, this would have been in my like my number six, my number seven. Like, honestly, I would have rated this ahead of King of Staten Island for sure, just to put that out there. But, but not um, quite the five-star feels. It doesn't have to quite the five-star feels, but I do love Kelly Reich- Richard, or even if I can't say her name right, or Reichert. However you say her name. like The second, the second one is correct, yeah. Not the first. I do love, I do love her filmography. Um, like, I, I find, like, Old Joy particularly is one that isn't brought up a lot. It's, like, a very quick 78 minute movie about two friends who drift away who go into nature together just um she's a very patient filmmaker and this movie is very patient it's very quiet and it's just yeah it was it it's a beautiful movie it's one that i agree doesn't need to be rewatched a lot it is very precious and like it's it's ironically about you know like a rich pastry it's very rich actually for It'll oh. make you hungry too. That's a big thing. This movie will oh, make you. We've been want going for some, for a few hours now in this podcast. I could <laughs> mess with some oily cakes. Right <laughs> yeah, but um, it 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 is definitely is definitely a good you know a good example of her kind of work. So definitely dive into her work, Scott. Um, and you know it's just a lot of beautiful natural filmmaking in nature, yeah. and it's just like it's not for everybody, but it's great. Um, yeah, the mo- the most the thing that it reminded me the most of, not to divert us too much, was Deborah Granick's Leave No Trace from a couple. Yeah, that's ago. what you were gonna say. Yeah, yeah, and, and another film that I was surprised how much I was taken with. I mean, it was in my, I think it was like number six from a couple years ago. Yeah, I really like First Cow. I think it's just the first thirty minutes are like a hair too slow. For me. I understand like slow cinema, like that's that's the thing. People understand if it's too slow, um, but it's like. Once they meet up again inside like the bar speakeasy type thing, that's when like, I'm like, okay, I'm all the way in now. Um, but before that, I don't know. It's just, it takes just a second to get into, but I really like it. Um, I, I need to do a little bit more diving into Kelly Riker as well. Cause I've only seen um, night moves. Um, and I think I would really like certain women. And then Meek's cutoff is the one that I think is like her most well-regarded. So I definitely need to watch that. One. But um yeah, first cow. Wendy is great. and Lucy too. Wendy and Lucy is yeah. really great. Just write the whole okay. thing. Okay. <laughs> we uh, listed everything except for River of Grass. So there you go. <laughs> now we have it all. There we go. All right. Let's uh let's uh move on now to Aaron's number one. Uh and it is also Paul's number two movie of the year. This is the movie that I was alluding to at the beginning of the first episode that may end up being my number one of 2020 once I see it in a couple of months. Nomad Land. <laughs> Aaron, tell us more about this. Yeah, uh, Chloe Zhao just absolutely knocks it out of the park. 
with this one. Five star feels all the way around to answer your questions for my number one. I wish I could give it six stars. This was a really, really uh, touching movie. Um, I didn't know much about it going in. Um, I didn't even know Francis McDormand was in it. So that's just how little I look into movies as I go into them. I just try to, and then Francis, she, I felt when I, um, finished this movie that she was the best performance of the year for me. Um, I like don't care about what other people think, but for me, she was the, I feel she should win the Oscar for, I don't know if she's even in the conversation at this point. I don't really, oh, yeah. she did a really great job with the, with working with a real life people as Chloe Zhao always will, you know, has done with her work with the writer. I really like the writer also. Um, and yeah, I just found this to be a very touching, uh, human story. I don't want to really spoil much about it because I didn't know anything about it going in, but, uh, Please don't. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, it, you know, if someone describes this as boring, I don't really understand what they're watching. Uh, I found it to be really exciting while taking its time to tell a really touching story. So, yeah, not much more I want to say at this point. I don't want to ruin it. Yeah, this is um, obviously my number two. So it's a movie I loved a lot as well. It actually invoked to me more her first film, Songs My Brothers Taught Me, um, which is a movie I'd really recommend to a lot of people because she finds these moments that are like the in-between moments of life that I think movies are so hard to capture. But there's this one specific one in Songs My Brothers Taught Me where there's a young Native man and he's he's sitting on the bleach with his girlfriend. They're holding hands and you see like a fire crackling in the distance. And it's just like that moment in time that you feel like you're existing in amber almost. And I think like that's a lot of what this movie is, is like these people having this escape into this other world where they remove themselves, again, I think, from the sort of the modern material world. And that changes the way they see things and the way they interact with people, their relationships to each other. Um, there are all these non-actors giving like incredible five minute long monologues that are just like a lot of trained actors can't do stuff this well. Um, and I was just bowled over by some of the stuff in this movie. I think it's so um, beautifully made. I, I talk about music a lot because I think that can really change swing a movie, but um, I don't know if it, this is the one I'll listen to the most, but I think of any movie, this is the musical score that enhances the movie the most and sets the mood um, there's a particular moment um, where someone is in this empty house and I was just like, it seems like such a simple moment, but I was really totally taken over by it. And so much of the movie is that is the feeling of sort of goosebumps of how special some of these moments are and um, taking people out of you know, a way of life that we're so familiar with and, and transporting us to this other lifestyle that I really know nothing about. Um, and it, yeah, it's finding the special moments outside of the realm of what we would normally define as like, you know, modern life. And it's what Chloe Zhao is so good at. And, um, you know, I hope Eternals is great, but I hope that does, isn't what her career turns into in full. Um, I hope that she continues to make stuff this intimate, um, this well-realized, this emotionally cogent. And I think that like, yeah, this is one of the great films of, of the year. And um, I hope more people get to see it when it does get released. I really hope that this gets a big push because um, this is a kind of movie that I think is not, um, always on the scale that this movie is going to be. I think this is like um, way more simple than a lot of movies that get this kind of Oscar attention. So I love that this has that behind it. Um, and yeah, just, I know you guys haven't seen it yet, but it's it's really beautiful and, yeah. and, moving and I think you guys will really connect to it. I mean, just yeah, from I the mean, trailer, I mean, talk about the music element to the trailer. Like the trailer is 
I, I was going to say the trailer yeah. made me like tear up. So like, I think I'm absolutely, absolutely going to flip for this movie. It seems like right up my alley. So I can't wait, honestly. They should just put it on Disney plus. It's fine. Yeah, it's it. like I guess like the reason I, 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 like, I like got uncomfortable when you said that. <laughs> I was like, oh, no. <laughs> wait, if you, look, if you want a big push for a lot of people to watch this movie, that's the way to do it. It's not going to be giving it a, a you know. Well, it's coming to. I thought it's coming to streaming at some point. I think it's like is it? Yeah, in, in March. No, it's definitely coming to streaming in March. I don't know if it's coming to Hulu or it's Hulu because I think it's Searchlight. I think it is Searchlight. It is Searchlight. Yeah, it's Disney. It um, is Searchlight. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, look, I think that. I mean, fewer people watch Hulu than, than Disney Plus. That's just the truth of the matter. But I understand why they put it on Hulu and not Disney Plus. Yeah, it's very it's very adult. It's I pretty pretty rated rated R point. They're not it will never be on Disney Plus. But yeah, like it's just the reason I said the Francis McDormand thing, I was surprised is like I don't usually consensusly agree with like the critics when I finish a movie. Yeah. So like for me to leave a movie and say, like usually like I'll say something like The Lobster is the best movie I've seen all year. Like, or something like that. And so, like, when I came out of the movie and had the reaction that Francis McDormand was by far the best performance I'd saw all year, like, I'm just surprised when I have a consensus opinion. With it's it's like, like Paras- it's not the critics saying that. It's, it's like, you know, the Academy. But it's, yeah. it's like Parasite last year. It's like, true. Yeah, I can't believe that everyone. Yeah, is behind this like absolutely incredible movie like objective yeah moonlight was a really a huge moment for i guess me and the academy to start to bond together and then green book happened um okay we are we are down to it scott our individual number ones of the year um why don't you get us started out with your number one which is also my number five of the year sound of metal yeah uh, talking about uh, movies that get released on Amazon Prime that don't have a lot of like marketing heft behind them, I think Sound of Metal is also, unfortunately, uh, m- it might be a victim of that. Uh, look, I've been a Riz Ahmed fan for a while, and I have been sort of enamored with him since you know The Night Of, which was an HBO limited series from 2015, 2016. And pretty much everything he's done since then, I've been like really keyed in on, like obviously... He's done some bigger stuff more recently, like Rogue One and and Venom, but even some of the other things. And it was honestly, I didn't love Venom. <laughs> Shocker. Probably I think most people didn't really love Venom very much. But um, I'm it was really happy to see that the next thing that I was going to see him in was something something smaller, something more intimate and uh, something that honestly just feels like so much more meaningful. I mean, I love comic book movies as much as the next person, but something that's just like so much more full of like richer and full of meaning that sound of metal is and you know you it's impossible i guess to separate um, you know when you watch a movie from the context you understand about it but like to to know how this movie was made you know talking about nomadland and and like the sort of like natural like you know real life uh people giving these monologues right like sound of metal is more or less that like paul racy who's someone who's getting a lot of oscar buzz for best supporting actor um and you know has won critics awards already he's someone who i don't even know if he's been in another feature film but he's someone from you know, from this community, from this deaf community, who I think he's the child of two deaf parents, uh, I believe. I, I think he's he himself is not deaf. I don't I don't think, but he's the child of two deaf parents. I think, and you know, he has this like rich experience from being you know surrounded and enveloped in this community, and and what they're you know what you know the likes of him, and then um, you know R- Riz Ahmed is able to do in this performance. I mean, they're two of the best performances of the year for me. 
and it's hard to even compare them because I think what they're doing are just like perfect complements to each other. I think you have, you know, this person who has lived the life of having been deaf, right? Like he's had all these experiences. He's running this home in the form of Paul Racy's character. And then you have someone who is just starting to experience, you know, what, what that's like and becoming deaf from, you know, the career and the passion and the way that he lives and, you know, the sort of collision of these two forces is something that I just found particularly arresting and the love and the gentleness and the caring of Paul Racy's character, whose name is Joe in the movie. I think that it's just, it's beautiful. Like really, I don't know the way to describe it other than it's like just really beautiful. And I think the resistance and the anger and the emotion that you get from, you know, Riz Ahmed's Ruben is so like, even though I have no experiences with, you know, struggling with hearing or becoming deaf, like it just felt so authentic and relatable. And then to have this entire community of children of other performers in the film, um, you know, a real school that they went to for, you know, the deaf and hearing impaired to shoot a lot of these scenes. It just feels like, you know, why aren't films that are talking about these things? Like, why aren't, why aren't they doing things like this more often? It just feels like that's, you know, yes, there's a lot of fictionalization of things, obviously, in, in films. But like when you can just draw on like authentic experiences um, to complement the movie that you're making, you know, that that just feels like it makes perfect sense. And Darius Martyr as the director here, I think, you know, I don't, I don't believe it's his if it's his first film. I think he might have one other film. Maybe like he's written film. he's written with Derek C in France, but I don't think he's directed anything actually. Okay. Um, yeah. So I mean, look, I, I think that his vision for this movie just felt perfect in the way he was able to stage these scenes. It doesn't it didn't feel like, you know, his first feature film. Um, it felt like he had a lot more experience and a lot I mean, and look, if he's worked with Derek C in France, even if it's only writing, like he's learning a lot from Derek C in France, I'm sure. Um, but it doesn't feel like it's it, you know, it's his first film. I, I I often joke that that's like such an overused cliche that like, oh, you can tell this is a director's first film, but like you really cannot tell that this is his first film, if that's the case. And um, you know, this has a couple of the scenes in this are just some of the best scenes of the year for me. I mean, the the last scene between Ruben and Joe in the kitchen where Joe is kicking Ruben out of the facility uh, for making, I don't want to spoil. I mean, I guess I just spoiled it because he gets kicked out of the facility, but um, I just like, it's such an, I mean, such an emotional scene, honestly, it's just so overpowering um, an emotional moment. And I was just kind of just, I don't know. I was just glued, glued to the screen. And then, you know, going from that, I thought that was going to be sort of like the emotional high point of the movie. And even though I think it was ultimately like the direction this film goes in the final 20 minutes where I thought, Oh, I might be stretching this off a little bit too far here like overstaying its welcome a little bit and and pulling it out a little further than it should. But the sort of emotional ending for Olivia Cook and Riz Ahmed in, in the movie and, you know, the final shot of the, of the film, again, it felt like it, it feels like it hits it perfectly. And, you know, again, even though I have no personal experience that connects me to these characters or these ex or these individual moments or experiences they're going through, I just felt like I could I could understand and could feel what these characters are feeling, particularly Ruben. And it's a magical film in my book. And um, yeah, kind of like Paul was saying with, you know, how far and away First Cow felt like his favorite film of the year, like Sound of Metal. It, it wasn't hard to put this in my number one for me. It was really an easy decision. Yeah, I think, Scott, what you're describing of like, I, you know, I don't I've never known anyone in this position or where I've never been in this position, whatever. But I like feel everything with these characters. I mean, that's what movies are about, I feel like. Um, and, and why can't so uh, many of them do it? <laughs> yeah. 
because they're not good. Um, yeah, no, I, I think this is a wonderful movie. Um, and I was fortunate enough to see this in theaters, which I think really does amplify the experience. The sound design, especially, um, is, is out of this world. I see what you did there. Amplifies. Uh, uh, oh, yeah, that was totally intentional. Um, but what, after I saw this movie, and, you know, it ends on a note of, like, peace, like Scott is mentioning. But the, the first thing that came into my head is this just feel this movie is profoundly sad to me. Um, not just the fact that he loses his hearing, um, right, and something that is so important to his entire well-being, his uh, career, his relationship with Olivia Cook character uh lou i believe is her name um and uh that so so not not just that i mean it's all of those things i think that make it um but also the choice sorry <laughs> what i must say is the choice that uh he makes then towards the end of the film right about how he's going to try to deal with this issue like is he gonna well we've already spoiled it is he gonna learn to live with it or is he gonna try to have the surgery and then the fallout from the surgery, the scene that got me uh, and made me really emotional was when he sees her singing at uh, her father's house next to the um, piano. Olivia Cook gets up to sing with her father and it sounds completely wrong. To, and again, this is another moment where the sound design is brilliant because I think we're flashing between what everyone else is hearing, her singing very beautifully, and then the stark contrast to what he's hearing in the you know, garbled new ear hearing aids that he has. Um, and that's kind of the moment you, you know, you see it on his face, like, of like, th this is when he realizes it's never going to be the same again. There's nothing he can do to, to fix um, what has happened to him uh, when, you know, the beautiful music, making music, the thing that he loves this much. Um, it's just, it doesn't sound, it doesn't even sound good to him at all. And that just kind of like ripped my heart out of someone who like loves music and, um, you know, I talked about on the podcast how I have kind of a paranoia about losing my hearing and stuff and have for several years. So this movie really, really hit home to me. And yeah, I think the performance of the year from Reza Ahmed for me, like, uh, I, I hope he gets the Academy Award. I do think he's going to lose to Chadwick Boseman, which is fine because Chadwick Boseman is great in Bahraini, but, um, I, I was blown away by what, uh, he did here. And I think this is an, uh, incredible debut from Darius Martyr. You guys? Yeah, I think there are some nuances that the movie sort of fails to explore about the demonization of cochlear implants. And like, I think there is some, some, something there in terms of like the way that um, it is complicated. I think, you know, for some people that is something that they find valuable and that is a, an important aspect of their life. And I think this is sort of like one perspective and, you know, as all films are one specific perspective, but I think it's missing a bit of the wholeness that I would have kind of wanted for something like this, but yeah, I mean, it's great. It was in my teens. I really liked it. Um, I also haven't seen it since I first watched it um, through a film festival, and it did. It, the quality was not as like up there. So I think like if I watch it again, I might have a better experience with the audio and visuals necessarily. Um, but yeah, I didn't even know Olivia Cook was in this, and I like kind of didn't recognize her at first. And I was like, "Is that Olivia Cook?" And I had to like double check. That was a strange experience for me. She's yeah. always great, though. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's he's of course like terrific he's he's a, he had a great musician double feature this year with mogul mowgli which is a movie that nobody really saw where he plays a rapper and he, he's really good in that as well um but i think yeah this movie it's really moving and i think it serves a community that i think is just frankly super underserved in media so it's great to see some 
um, representation in that aspect. And again, one of the great movie endings of the year as well. Um, something that I think it's such a great capper on the film and is like quiet, but profound in that, that way. Yeah. Which is why I like serendipitously really excited. I mean, at the time this is really still Sundance will have already happened, but it's really excited to see a movie like Coda being at, at Sundance and coming, yeah. coming so closely after sound of metal and what that might be like. Aaron, your thoughts on sound of metal. Yeah, it was right outside my top 20, but I really did love it. Um, I thought that Paul Racy was the absolute standout, though. Every scene with him, I was just absolutely glued. I mean, I thought his performance was amazing, and just I had never seen him before. I'm not sure if he's been done a lot of other work, but I really yeah. he's been in like TV, but not he's yeah. not yeah. a big movie guy. I literally thought they're like they pulled a counselor from a like a deaf um, facility, and just I mean, he was just so amazing in this role and um yeah it, it it um just is from a community that i'm personally involved with so um i really respond strongly to uh i think that this could be a population that gets a lot more of a spotlight um and i find um that it was done really well here it reminded me at times of like a short-term 12 kind of when it was in the facility of just the realness of it and just it not exploiting the setting it was in, but just presenting the setting. And it was just really well done. Um, sound design. This is another one that I would love to see in the theater with just that surround, like a full sound immersion, but still at home, I was able to get it done, but it's just like one of these that I would have liked to feel the actual sound, like in my seat, like type of thing. So for a movie like this, that's so, independent and quiet to want that theater experience it's i don't think that really matters for we all kind of know we can go see an independent movie in a theater and have that same impact as like a big blockbuster but it's just yeah this particularly did feel the missing of that like i remember when we went to see totally different movie but at astra you could feel the like taking off of the space shuttle when i talked to people who saw that at home they're like what are you talking about? The shuttle scene was fine, but like, I was like, no, like there's just, yeah. Theaters do matter. Theaters do matter. And this would have been a great one to see, but really a great, powerful film. But yeah, Paul Racy to me was just, I blown away by him in this movie. All right. Well, we saved the best for last. Uh, and that is because it is my number one film. I am on my own Island here because nobody else had this on their list, but uh, it did come up several times throughout the show. Um, in you brought it up several times throughout the show. Positive light. <laughs> Actually, I didn't. I was not the first person to bring it up. I was not at all. Uh, I, I don't believe I, I maybe brought it up once. But anyway, um, I just have three words. Pull me out. Uh, my number one is Possessor. Uh, this movie was absolutely incredible. Right. Um, I uh, was blown away from the moment I watched this for the first time. Uh Brandon Cronenberg um, obviously has a lot to live up to uh, with that name. Um, and I think he does, uh, but I think he's forging his own path as well. Um, I think that uh, he, you know, will, if he keeps making films like this, he will very quickly get out of the shadow of his father, um, despite his father being the legend that he is. Um, but this movie, there's so much going on, right? On, on the surface, right? It is, it's a very entertaining, original um visually exciting um, sci-fi body horror movie um, that I think has some really cool world building. Um, 
and just like a story that just really worked for me. Um, all, like all of the, the plot beats really, you know, hooked me even towards the end, I think where it gets more intricate, um, about, you know, who's in what body, whatever. Um, I, I thought that, uh, I was, I understood what was going on the whole time. And, um, I think it does things really efficiently, which I always appreciate. Um, they don't waste their time with like extraneous details about like the world or, or I specifically like how the technology works. Right. It's like, I, we don't need any of that. It's just like, here, you, you understand that like you're they're going into someone else's body and like uh, other than that, I don't think anything is really that necessary for the plot of the movie. But um, yeah, this movie has like, again, very visually exciting, like some of these sequences where they're like fighting for control of the bodies, like this, these really like this really like phantasmagoric imagery that's going on, I think is is, you know, really exciting again and, and uh, you know, not something very different from uh, anything I've seen in a long time. Um, and, uh, but I also think the themes of this movie, like there's a lot uh, thematically that's going on here in addition to just the genre thrills. Um, and there's a lot of stuff about like your job being really soul sucking and Christopher Abbott um, is, you know, at works for like the, the corporation basically in this world. And he's like, just sitting watch looking at other people's like possessions that they have in their house and trying to decide like uh you know what he's gonna tell his company to sell and all of this stuff um and it's just like this really sort of mundane thing he's just like looking at people's curtains um and it's it, you know it, it clearly has like you know in a movie where that is a lot about like losing your identity and stuff like that it's clear that like just something as simple as like going and doing his job and like you know, having to stare into the screen for however many hours a day is like causing him to like lose his sense of self. Um, but yeah, then there's, there's so much stuff going on with like identity and, and corporations and how, um, you know, when we, uh, when we, when, as the more corporations start to permeate our culture and, you know, every, every aspect of our culture, um, we start to sort of, give our, our identities start to sort of be given over to them. Um, the more we try to mimic what we see and, uh, and things like that. And, um, I, re I really love the direction that the plot goes in the last part of this movie. Um, I think that the last line, um, or the, the very last moment of the movie between Jennifer Jason Lee and Andrea Riseborough is, um, like is, is one of those where I was like, Oh, I, you know, I'm really loving this movie. Please stick the landing. And then like the last line, the last moment of the movie happens and it fades to the credits. And I was just like, wow, like, they, they killed it. Um, but Christopher Abbott, I think, is the standout performance here. I think uh, he's doing like, again, a lot of different things of like he's this one character, Colin, but he's also Colin being controlled by Tazia, which is Andrea Riseborough's character. And then he's also both of these people fighting for control of, uh, you know, fighting inside the same body. And it's a really difficult performance. Um, and I think he, he nails it all. Sean Bean plays a great villain here, um, as he often does. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know. This movie is just, uh, it's one of a kind, like it, it, it is not like anything that I've, I've seen in a while. And I think the originality takes it a long way, but what takes it to being my number one, I think is, um, all of the really fascinating ideas um, that are going on here. Again, 
technology, corporations, you know, soul sucking work. Um, I think uh, it's the sign of a great director when you can imbue a sci-fi body horror movie like this um, with these sorts of deep ideas. And, you know, a lot of people have made it out have been like, oh, this film is so violent. This is the most violent film ever. I, I don't agree. Like, and I've watched the uncovered twice. And, uh, yeah, there's some very violent parts, but but it is not violence for violence sake. The fact that the violence is so over the top in certain scenes actually plays is is an important aspect of the plot um, because that is the calling card for Tazia when she, um, you know, it kills someone is that she often uses a more gruesome method than, um, than she needs to in order to get the job done. And that becomes important for the plot as the movie goes on. So it's not just violence for violence sake. Um, and I don't think it is what people have made it out to be. Um, but yeah, this is, this is my easy number one. Again, Nomadland is the only movie that might knock it off, but um, I, you know, this is one that I will enjoy rewatching uh, for years to come because I think it is, it's one of the best sci-fi films in many years. Well, we'll see when you when you uh, rewatch Sonic if if it takes. <laughs> um, yeah, I, this Watch was it for the first um, time. I never saw it, but yeah, this was. It's basically hovering at my number twenty twenty one. It honestly could go as high as the teens eventually. I just watched it for the first time like two days ago. Um, yeah, it's definitely not as gruesome as I think its reputation. Um, uh, you know, the the uncut version sure, sure is a gem, right, kids? Um, but no, <laughs> um, yeah, I think the thematic stuff really worked for me, especially the stuff about work and how. Um, work sucks your entire life up and absorbs like your family life and reshapes the your relationship to um, your loved ones um, and the physical toll that it literally like the literal physical toll that it takes on you you see like her body is going through this entire ordeal and like you notice all of those bumps and bruises um, all for you know higher wages and stuff and like the fact that this that this company that she works for, this assassination company is operating with like no government oversight and they don't have to worry about any of that stuff is like, you know, all this nomad land, first cow, all this like anti late stage capitalism stuff is all sort of coming together. I think to uh, have a unifying message for the the great films of 2020. But yeah, I thought consulting. This... that's what it is. I'm sure they're operating <laughs> as a consulting firm, but I, I, yeah, I just thought that this movie again, it, it has all these ideas, but it, it's also like just visually arresting and, um, even if it hadn't that going on, it would still be well worth your time. And uh, it's just, it's a movie that's got a lot of different colors and I think um, plays in different sort of fields, I think, than, than sort of this kind of genre movie um, always does necessarily. Shocked this was your one, but in a very good way. Um, like, I'm happy to hear this is your one. I think this movie deserves more talk about it. So more ending explained videos could be made for me to understand the video now. But, uh, you know, like I... Honestly, I've only seen this one time. I saw the original uh, cut of the movie. Um, so I would like to see the uncut. Um, can you even get edition. the original cut now? I feel like you can You can only see the I think you can get version. both on Voodoo. Yeah, I, 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 well, I, I, yeah, I got the original cut back when it was first released before mm. there was even the option for the other one. But um, either way, I definitely do need to rewatch because – I wasn't overwhelmed by the violence, but just overall the style and all the different things Brandon Cronenberg was trying, I wasn't able to focus as much on the thematical elements that you're bringing up and like the corporate, like, and all, like I was just more trying to keep up with the movie. The first time didn't really know it was that level of a movie until like it was too late into the movie that I wasn't paying attention to that aspect. And I still enjoyed it 
from just like a visceral action level. But I I haven't dove quite into the thematic elements as much of the movie. So I definitely want to revisit it. But I think it's a movie that can be enjoyed on different levels. So I think different audience audiences can appreciate a movie like this too at the same point. But yeah, like Christopher Abbott that has really like had some amazing performances over the last just couple of years, not just this year, but yeah, he was really great. I thought Andrea Risenborough was also really good. Um, she, yeah. she makes some wild choices, like in terms of the movies that she makes. <laughs> yeah. And like, I just, yeah, this is such a, I just had no idea this was even in the like running for your one. So this is a really great surprise. Good choice. Yeah, no, this, this was, again, this was my one for pretty much the moment that, that those end credits hit the first time. Um, and yeah, it just, it, and I so wish I could have seen it in the theater. I know we're sounding like a broken record here, but I mean, yeah, all the visuals, the sound, everything I think is, yeah, the practical is so striking. Movie. The color palette is, is, you know, like really interesting. Scott. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, like it was number 14 on my list and I definitely, I definitely feel what Aaron is saying around how it, it's a film that it feels like you just kind of have to like take a lot in on a first one. Cause there's so much there and it's, there's so much there and it, it's not messy at the same time. Like a lot of films that just have a lot of themes going on, just feel really erratic uh, oftentimes. But I feel like this is just like, it just like has a lot in it to unpack. Right. And I definitely didn't feel like I could get it all in one viewing, looking forward to seeing, you know, how the needle moves for me on repeat viewings. I agree. I mean, like, honestly, I thought Midsommar was more violent than this movie personally but yeah um, yeah like I, I don't know just yeah the, the as the, the way that you built it up before i finally saw it scott was just like this was just going to be you know really hard to watch because of how about it i'm like sure it has its moments where you no, know you I, kinda, I think you i told you away. i mean again i like i've been saying from the beginning i don't think it's as violent as people have made it out to be. it's just so visceral that i think yeah. that a lot of it does a, a lot with less that it feel it's visceral it's not like Sure. Intensely yeah. violent, though. Yeah. But, I have yeah, some but, mixed feelings about the opening scene and like the racial implications of some of that stuff. And I think that's like sort of like tossed off in a way that I don't necessarily love. Um, I did want to bring up that because I mean, yeah. like Holly Graham, who I believe is the actress, is that is that right, Holly? Mm. I thought the character's name was Holly. Yeah, you're right. I think the Holly. I think is it. Ga it is it Gabriella Graham or something like that. I don't know. Yeah, Gabrielle Graham plays Holly. Yeah. That's yeah, it. yeah. Gabrielle Graham. Um, I did want to come back to that in a second, but before we get to that, one of the one of the interesting parts about this film for me is that like this film just like screams cyberpunk to me. Like this, like this like cyberpunk feel to it and its color palette and some of the like really like big brothery type themes uh, that that are like laden in in the with the film and and. It's like also I feel like it also kind of like resists the temptation to be pulled like so I don't know towards that and still try like in these other this other half of the film or less than that maybe is like feels more like much more grounded than your than your typical cyberpunk fair might be which I just thought was like a really interesting choice to like have these illusions almost towards what feels like this like whole, this technology this corporation this color palette but then like not also try to be that at the same time I thought it was a really good balancing act but then yeah this opening scene i mean there's like so much praise for this like five to ten minute performance of gabrielle graham who plays this character holly who um tazia is possessing at the beginning of, of the movie and i was not as like totally blown away by by that particular performance but paul it sounds like you have like a lot more a lot of other, at least other thoughts i should say about it. I, I don't know how to I again I just watched it, but I just think that there are some stuff to unpack about the implications of like taking over her body and the lack well, of yeah. and stuff like that. 
I was going to say, like, they probably could have explored that more, and that would have been an interesting thing to do. But I don't know. I, I think it it works in and of itself just to have that scene when you understand how the technology works, right, of somebody possessing someone else's body, the fact that here's a white person who is using a black person's oh, body yeah. to carry out a heinous murder, right? Like, I hate to say it, but if this technology ever becomes a thing, you could totally see this, you know, and I just don't being, think it grabs being how it is used. Yeah, no, like, it, I, I don't disagree not. with that either. The, the thing for me is that the, the rest of the movie had enough on its mind, I think, um, to satisfy me. Um, although I do think that would have been an interesting avenue for them to go down. Any more shout outs oh. for Tippins? Yeah. yeah. Good. <laughs> All right, guys, we did it. Uh, that is our best of 2020 countdown. Before we go, uh, since we did kind of jump around a little bit in our lists, uh, I want to give everyone. Uh, just a quick chance to recap their 10 through one, just, you know, read down what your list was in linear fashion. So everyone um, knows, uh, you know, the, the exact order since we, again, we were sort of piecing our list together as we went on. Paul, do you want to start us off? Yeah, sure. So my number 10 was Lover's Rock. My number nine was Ride Your Wave. My number eight was Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always. My number seven was The Vast of Night. My number six was Dick Johnson is Dead. Uh, my number five was Shithouse. My number four was Minari. My number three was Mangrove. My number two was Nomadland. And then my number one, First Cow, Moo Moo Gang Rise Up. My college uh, mascot was, uh, was a cow. So there you go. <laughs> Aaron, you're 10 through one. Yeah, my 10 through one on this list, my 10 for this <laughs> podcast that includes most of my 2020 watches. Uh, number 10, Bakaru. Um, number nine, Black Bear. Number eight, not the Five Bloods, but King of Staten Island. Number seven, Invisible Man. Number six, Promising Young Woman. Five, Mangrove from the Small Axe series. Four, Lover's Rock. Three, Minari. Uh, two, I'm thinking of ending things. And number one, Nomad Land. Scott. My number 10 is Time. My number nine is First Cow. My number eight is Boys State. Number seven, Bad Education. Number six, One Night in Miami. Number five, Mangrove. Number four, Never Rarely, Sometimes Always. Number three, Tenet. Number two, Soul. And number one, Sound of Metal. And my list, number 10, Freaky. Number nine, Shithouse. Number eight, Minari. Number seven, Mank. Number six, Soul. Number five, Sound of Metal. Number four, Boy State. Number three, I'm Thinking of Ending Things. Number two, Time. And number one, Possessor Uncut. Uh, where would All the right. original cut rank for you? Would that be Mine, mine's the original? I haven't I seen the original. Only read the original. Okay, guys, that'll do it for this episode of Some Like It, Scott. That'll do it for this two-parter uh, best of, on the best of 2020. Uh, hope you guys, uh, hope all the listeners out there stuck with us uh, through both parts of this uh, this long um, countdown. Uh, we had a great time. We had a great time doing it. And I hope that, uh, you guys had a great time listening. And I hope you've had a great time listening to everything we did in 2020. I know it was a weird year. Um, but you know, Scott and I did our best, uh, to come up with movies every week and look, we did it right. We were, we can't, we can't, yeah, we only missed a couple of weeks. Um, we were coming up with movies every week, sometimes pretty mediocre and bad ones, but, um, we did it. And, uh, 
thank thanks to you guys for hopefully sticking with us through the uh, through some of those mediocre ones um, to get to some of the really good stuff at the end of the year. Don't let anyone tell you that there were no good movies that came out in 2020 because we just talked about 26. Um, uh, so yeah, you got a lot to to check out. Hopefully, if uh, you, some of these haven't crossed your radar yet. Um, but uh, otherwise, we look forward to 2021, and we hope, uh, listeners, that you will uh, you're excited for what 2021 has to offer. Hopefully, some movies will actually come out this year. Thanks again for listening, everyone. Thanks so much to Paul and Aaron too for joining us uh, this year. It was a great time. We definitely want to have you guys back. You're welcome anytime. Honestly, on some like it, Scott. Um, I think you guys were great additions to this uh, year-end episode. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, like, do all the things that you do on your preferred podcast app. Check out uh, Aaron's podcast, uh, Digesting Cinema. Um, they got the Blair Witch Project coming up this week for, for the 90s. Um, check out Paul on the Down and all the stuff that he's involved with. Um, and check out, you know, everything that we have here on Some Like It Scott Media Play Pods. And next time on Some Like It Scott, uh, we have an exciting episode for you in which Scott and I will be recapping all of the movies that we're going to be watching uh, this coming weekend at the Sundance Film Festival, the virtual Sundance Film Festival. Um, so I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, hope you are as well. And again, thank you for joining us. Until next time, for Scott Shelton, I'm Scott Harvey. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.